0: to the Director's Club with Brad and Al. are Podcasting is one of these sites and podcasts on the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Director's Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout hits, legendary classics, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections can come up when you take a look at a director's whole body of work. Come join us on the film journey, and we're taking a... Bit of a Redux edition journey out into the lands of Brian De Palma today in this episode. Howdy, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. But before we get to talking De Palma, we just want to remind you that the Directors Club will be revealing their favorite films of 2019. Brad, Patrick, and Jim are going to be revealing them in the first weekend of January for the annual year-end spectacular at the director's club. And as always, we would love to hear your thoughts on the year that was. So please email your top 10 from 2019 to the email address of Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com and your list will be included on the show. Thanks. And speaking of Jim, he's uh, coming on joining us to go and talk to Palma because... Uh, if you listen listened to previous episodes, he there's, has quite an interesting history. Uh, welcome back, Jim. It was an infamous episode. Yes. yes. What made it so infamous?
1: Well, the fact that we tried a format that we never did before, and I don't think we did again, where we took somebody who uh, loves the director and someone who despises the director and basically threw them in a wrestling ring and watched them go at it. And it got ugly. It got intense. And uh, I I will say that I I don't fall on either extreme (laughs) and, But it was fun to listen to at times, for sure. But there was a lot more yelling and swearing that I think that will happen today.
2: Yeah, there might be a little bit of deja vu minus the yelling and swearing because Al and I are coming from very different points of view Mm. on Mr. De Palma. And I have noticed that just among film people, uh, he is such a divisive topic. There's a lot of love him or hate him going on around there. So I think that'll be... Interesting
0: to explore. Mm-hmm. All the divisiveness is incredibly well earned because a pure hack or a mediocrity would be able, to, you'd be able to easily able be able to put them in one kind of box or another. Like no, everyone's easy to rag on Michael Bay. That's why there's a uh, mm-hmm. very, very little interest in giving his his stuff a further examination. But it can be all the more like frustrating when you have someone who does some things that are really, that actually are exceptional, even beyond exceptional, and then do other things which manage to fail so utterly badly that, that make, that make a a situation in a movie theater intolerable to sustain. He contains both those things. He
1: contains multitudes.
2: You might say. And so if you haven't guessed, Al is the con and I am the pro. And I'm right in the
1: middle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then, right. And one of the things we're going to also be talking about on that, I think is going to be how sometimes you, it's great when you watch a film and you catch a, a wonderful moment but then a certain kind of myopia can sometimes come about mm-hmm. <laughs> at least that's what i'm that's how i'm calling it where the value of something just can completely overcome like uh, a film is false, and 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 by the you way, you think he's it,
1: elevated to some degree in the minds of a lot of cinephiles. There's
0: a particular there's a particular reason I think, and and, mm. and and we'll go get on that. But part of it is also from something that a person that Brian De Palma has quite enj- uh, enjoyed and respected over the years, Alfred Hitchcock is. Alfred Hitchcock famously said about people who criticized like plot holes in his movies, so like, oh, they're the plausibles. They need everything <laughs> to be plausible, and part of Hitchcock's uh, uh, mission was like i'm going to go and try and get you to be entertained on these things and let you ride right over. you can ride right over on those and sometimes the palma gets gets you over those and sometimes he doesn't (laughs) sometimes he really really doesn't (laughs) so we'll have the border of homage and maybe other Mm -hmm. like synonyms for homage as we as we get into (laughs) the palma because he's also a guy who has Several phases over his career, and that's also what we're going to do something a little different in this episode we 're going to go and look at his films not chronologically, but it turns out they fit in certain categories and we'll bounce those amongst those categories yeah. right and the first category
2: is kind of chronological because you have to say, well where did this guy come from? what is his origin story and you get a series of really interesting low-budget counterculture films in the uh, late 60s. The first film that he had, which was uh, commercially released, is called uh, Murder a la Mod. It's not good. It looks like a student film. But it's conceptually ambitious. And that's something I'm going to go back to again and again, is how much I admire Brian De Palma's ambition as a creative person to try to take things that are already in the culture, things that he, uh, appreciates and move it in an unexpected direction. So he's starting with the, uh, Hitchcock formula very much from the beginning. It's basically about, uh, uh a filmmaker and, uh, his model and there is a murder. But the twist on this, and the probably the only thing that makes it worth watching, is that he shows the murder in three separate parts from th- three separate point of views. So we watch, have the murder from the victim's point of view. Then we flashback start over and watch the murder from one of the suspects point of view and finally a third time from another suspect's point of view now there's a lot of goofiness involved uh william, oh, william finley, finley who oh boy uh, yeah he is <laughs> he is actually not one of my favorite uh de palma people even though de palma started with him and, and adores him and uses him a lot but he has some fun <laughs> with an ice pick yeah at, at halfway <laughs>
1: through this it's kind of entertaining it's like it's weird it's like it almost switches genres at one point once he comes onto the scenes like it's like it's like a wacky comedy almost practically well he
2: benny hills it yeah. at one point yeah. and does the fast uh speedy uh thing that comedy old comedies used to mm. use yeah and for me that this falls completely flat
1: yeah, it's, it's more like french new wave too it's like just kind of haphazard in its approach and it's sort of i guess he's trying to do the rashomon thing which he kind of does later Russia
0: murder yeah
1: basically <laughs> He does that kind of in snake eyes when we get the, the different points of view from different people. But yeah, it, it's, it's it's a debut film and it shows. And he
2: continues in this mode with Greetings, which was kind of his underground breakthrough and the film debut of one Robert De Niro. Never heard of him. Oh, yeah. He, he might even have a movie out this year. And it deals with topics that are very much of its time. You have a uh, Kennedy assassination buff. You have the idea of people trying to get out of serving in, uh, at Viet- in Vietnam. And then the, with the De Niro character, you have the theme of voyeurism coming through. Shocking. And that's going to take center stage in the first film I think we all uh, are going to talk about in detail. Which is the sequel to Greetings? Yes, it had a sequel
1: called Haima, originally titled Son of Greetings.
0: Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, voyeurism. You know how, like, when you like watch a uh, when you're watching like a war film and and a general is looking over the Eastern Front and they have the. Uh, filter over the frame which looks like there's two binocular two holes that you're the person's viewing through binoculars well how many de palma films would just be enhanced if you just had an iris that's clearly shows that he's looking through a peephole well i think this one actually does Uh,
2: yeah pretty (laughs) much yes exactly De, de niro uh developed something he calls peep art which is a pretty cool Way that De Palma takes the rear window thing from Hitchcock, which is very much so. He's going to take this uh, theme a lot throughout his career, and and often treat it more seriously. But the uh the, the voyeurism stuff in High Mom is played for comedy, and it's interesting how he is self aware about kind of the 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 sleaziness of it, but the fact that he's going to want it to be something that's more like art as he goes through his career. So you have, uh, this great scene where De Niro and, uh, Alan Garfield as a uh, porn producer are in a, <laughs> at a, in a porno movie. And he's trying to sell the idea that, Oh, this, this porno movie isn't anything. These people aren't into it there. There's no, no passion going on here. What you need to do is do a peeping Tom thing and that will uh, create the kind of the higher class uh, porno movie and Alan Garfield is like doing everything at the base level and and he's just got a, a hysterical performance where he's like, you know what if people wanted that, this guy's hand wouldn't be on my balls."
3: <laughs> oh
0: God. Yeah, Uh, that's a film where De Palma has this uh, question that pretty much no one asked of Rear Window, which is, oh, that Rear Window is an interesting movie. What if the guy, instead of being uh, Jimmy Stewart's uh, uh, incredibly nice guy view of everything decent in America... Was a disgusting sleazebag, and, <laughs> and it was kind was of pla- a perv. And it was played for kind of, <laughs> it's kind of played for. Last, I believe, I believe Jim, like some people, have been arrested for trying to do <laughs> that's true. The very, true. the very thing De Niro is pitching as the brand new version on. It's
1: weird on, to watch this though, in, in in knowing that years later Taxi Driver would come out because he plays a Vietnam vet in this, and he's also kind of in search of an identity of some kind, like he's trying to figure out well what what should I do? And he tries this and then he tries experimental theater, which we'll get to that sequence. I'm sure. Uh, and just like, then he becomes this like clueless urban gorilla type. And it's just, it's, it's a weird mashup again. And I, I've considered De Palma to be like a pastiche director where he just kind of like takes all these things and puts them into a blender and out comes this milkshake that maybe you'll find is, um, pleasurable to taste. And some people go, Oh, this is gross. I don't like this kale <laughs> in my, uh, in my smoothie. The opening with Charles Derning's really funny. Um, just like the, the jump cuts, uh, the use of jump cuts and just like checking out this apartment and him, like there's like a, <laughs> there's like a litter box inside the refrigerator or something. Right. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> just like, I, I like his sense of humor in this. And then it abruptly changes. At
2: one point. Right. Well, right. B- before we get to that, I, I just want to talk about kind of its influence because mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be talking about the Hitchcock influence a lot. But at this early stage, there's also a lot of uh, French New Wave. Definitely Godard. And particularly yeah, Godard influence going on with the, with the jump cuttings, with kind of the, the winking at it. Also, these are movies that are very much of their time. They mm-hmm. just reek of 1968 through 1970. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. mm-hmm. Yeah, he's right. The flavor of it is the new wave, the the attitude. I think you're 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 really onto something that the attitude of it, especially the self reflective look. Ma, I'm making a film. <laughs> Maybe keeping in with the high mom's situation. Yeah, it's
1: an interesting film to view after Inherent Vice and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like this this movie was made during that time, just like when people were probably in search of an identity after kind of being in crisis mode not mm-hmm. sure what what's going on culturally
0: and but the structure on it, the things that people hang on to a film when they're looking at, well, what comes next, and what what gets this up to like movie length, is the structure is the is the is the Hitchcock framing. Sure. And um, he may have invented the the in a way the uh, to video Roger Corman esking of things. You know how like when Roger Corman made Carnosaur right before, <laughs> like dress. If there was a if there was a Roger Corman esque thing, but but had an appreciation for Hitchcock, like where's Roger Corman's version of rear window (laughs) that's i think that might be kind of where that that may be the realm of of Definitely and definitely in this film, like, like, yeah. okay, I, I really he like this, the genre. Hop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I really like this. I really like this part of rear window. Hey, let's let's put in some let's put in some wacky comedy. Let's put in some new wave stuff. Let's put it in on an under budget. Let's get it. Let's get it out the door. <laughs> <laughs> if, if there was some sort of counter programming at the at the rundown theater next door to the big one with the marquee for rear window. Yeah. And I like this the, I like
1: the idea of I like him trying to time exactly when they, they should be having sex. And because he's like he knows that the camera is going to go off right at one point, mm. right? Yeah, that, yeah that, I mean, this is Goofy's funniest
2: movie. Just I think so as a too. Pure Comedy because he would try for a uh, traditional comedy in the eighties called Wise Guys. Yeah, that felt and flat. it was just terrible. Yeah, but no pisco for be, me.
0: <laughs> he can be funny. I think as this film demonstrates. Well, I think uh, I, I think that's a, a really great point that you guys can raise on the whole t- on the whole timing thing because it. Flags in on a movie that he does. He does a little later, a more a more rec- recognized film, but involves a character who is setting up a piece of equipment, and to set that piece of equipment up, he's basically in on a New York street corner, and he's timing how people leave an office. And he's over uh, yes, and yes. over and over again, and he holds this. And you have the notepad like based it takes on up his before. own
1: experience too. He mm. did, he did that watching his father. Mm-hmm. Essentially, cheating Exa- his mom, and,
0: and that's something which, right, and that's something which, like, uh, uh, is an, a really fascinating perspective to look at De Palma's stuff because he, when he was, as he it became more of a quantity in Hollywood, he was sort of a contemporary for, um, uh, for the, all these new, for all these new Hollywood up and coming directors, uh, Spielberg and Lucas, Coppola and Coppola and Scorsese, and, and when I hear about the timing. And when we go on for his, some of his other films, I think, oh my god, what if, what if George Lucas both a decided to actually make personal movies that are not American Graffiti, and two was way more was uh, was way more open about his perversity, because it's an interest in technical things, mm-hmm. an interest in timing, mechanical stuff, and how that's related to these to to all these salacious subjects. So that's, I think, something which my mom's actually bringing up, uh, bringing up or giving a little hint of. It is, but then
2: it gives us something else that is extraordinary and provocative, even Uh, even upsetting. Very much. Because in the middle of this comedy, uh, we go to a mockumentary, something uh that we are seeing now in uh, in black and white as if it's uh been fi- as it's been filmed by the, one of the characters mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's a sequence called be black baby and yes. this sequence is two things one it is probably the first bit of filmmaking brilliance that we see from de palma but also it's something that pushes all the buttons. It's something that's so provocative. It would be tough to get in a movie today.
1: Yeah. It's incredibly audacious and it's something that I have trouble sitting through, but at the same time, I think it's, it's saying a lot uh, about perception and societal expectations. And it's jarring that it happens in this movie where for the most part, you were laughing and kind of enjoying what you're watching to some degree, even if it's kind of perverse. And then you go to this and you're just like, Whoa. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's like a little bit of, a little bit of comedy in like early on when he's, when De Niro is trying to like pretend he's a cop, he's like talking to a mop or something <laughs> at one point before this, this, this incredible sequence takes place. And I do think it's one of the best that De Palma's ever done. Um,
0: but yeah, it's, it's incredibly intense. Hmm. I would am so grateful that we at the Directors Club have a chance to talk about this scene and incredibly grateful that when but way before the Directors Club Brad told me uh we were talking about the Palm and Brad told me hey watch Hi Mom uh especially make sure you get to the halfway point for High Mom mm-hmm. and I am so so happy that that happened um because it's a, a spoil little spoiler alert for this podcast. This is kind of a an absolute apex point for for exactly what's right and what's wrong about the Palma the, you, t- you think the, it takes it too far or hmm? well t- too too ah too far that's a great way that's a great way of, of putting it there because on the one hand, it is one of the greatest whiplash moves in 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 movie history. Um, and I mean that in a totally bad way. It's like, it's like stick a porn, uh, stick a porn scene in the middle of Cinderella level. What the hell's, th- what the hell are we at? Like the, the drawbridge drop, the drawbridge drops out and you are, pl- and you are plunging not only that, but when it's done, never referenced again, <laughs> that's kind of, if you can literally crystallize one of the main problems with the palma is that he cares about these things. Four, moments, like yeah, and he doesn't—he doesn't even mix them right. He cares about these moments, and it's clear that he cares about those moments. Then he's just takes the rest of the movie and straight, basically makes puts it together to feature length to be a, a vehicle to hold these mo- the hold these moments. However, what a moment! Okay, this scene to me is one of the ten greatest moments of cinema in history. I'm putting it up with like the, the, a trip to the moon from George Melies and the, the match being blown out to be the desert in Lawrence of Arabia in terms of what it is, because to what you're saying, Jim, about going too far. Yes, but it has a point. It absolutely has a point and it has a visceral point to mm-hmm. it. What this scene basically does is, is it appends all of your security of what of your expectations of what's going to happen next in the scene and just plunges it in directly into the current of racial anxiety. Jordan Peele's get out had a really great point of view on the idea of what do certain white people have this generosity towards the African American community but you can't quite trust them. There's a certain dichotomy. And mm-hmm. and, it, uh, and it works on the other way, too, about the idea of like, well, how much does a white culture like look at African-American culture as just something to as tourists, as just yeah, something yeah. to like look at once removed? And what does it mean to really push into a different kind of experience?
1: Well, I think the reason why he does he moves on from it is because the people, the participants in this, they move on to it probably like the next day they just go, they go about their rich white lives. I yeah. mean, they acknowledge how, you know, how it impacted them after they go through it. But honestly it, to them, it's just like, Oh, this is just like a night out at the theater. Mm-hmm. But as
2: we're watching them yes. go through it, it seems like something much more intense altogether. Oh, For sure. Oh, oh yeah. Because it, it, it looks like it's basically um, black actors are put in white face. White actors are put in black face and simulated violence, uh, occurs and it's done in such a documentary style. And there was a lot of improvisation in the making mm-hmm. of this and to our, as an audience eyes, I feel that the line between fiction and reality is just about gone with this. Yeah. It looks like we're seeing something that's actually happening. Well,
0: yes, exactly right. It looks absolutely real. The Vermilsitude is off the charts, but even more so for me, it feels real. Those anxieties of like, Oh God, what is, what to, uh, what do you expect? How, like, and getting the feeling on pure confrontation of that mm-hmm. is just so viscerally potent in this scene. Honestly, these directors who are known for their like transgressive natures, like Michael Hankey, Nicholas Winding Refn, heck on uh, Lars von Trier would like he would he would sacrifice several organs of his body to be able to do something this level of confrontational, this level of putting an audience in a dis in an uncomfortable position. But it's also connected to a very real social anxiety of the time. If you were yeah. able to take the stuff that Jordan Peele put in for a comic effect and horror effect for that kind of anxiety. And you put it in like a liquid form and injected it directly into your eyeball. This is what this whole sequence is. Yeah. I I would argue
1: though, that I think Hanaki in particular, he has moments in code unknown where it's like, sitting on a subway yes. and a woman being confronted like that is really anxiety
0: inducing in similar ways. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. But that's kind of in that scene it's kind of done as a case of like the uncomfortable sense of how people really exist whereas yeah. yeah. this is a provocation. It's right. it's a mission It's not shot like a documentary. Yeah. Right? And it, right, this is like a this is like a mission statement and you cannot make that sequence today because in our increasingly sensitive time, it's not even stepping on a landmine. It's embracing it it's embracing these really powerful feelings that are roiling through this country right now. But and I will say it's surprising to
1: have this experience in the midst of a comedy, like it's, yes. which I don't know if that De Palma doesn't always go for tonal consistency in his movies. And if you're put off by that, I can understand being, being, Kind of anti De Palma to some degree because yeah. I think in a lot of his movies
0: he does that
2: right. Although these are very much free form movies. Yeah, they anyway. are. They're, they're more. They're,
0: they're not tightly. They're searched. not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, but but a free form version on High mom could be free form in some uh, sometimes some different ways. He could have put a little bit of light drama here or something, or maybe done some social commentary in a in a get out kind of way. You didn't have to do this. <laughs> you didn't. Anybody who was expecting a light a a light kind of mildly sleazy comedy or gets themselves basically slapped across the face. By the way, that might be the point. Yeah. (laughs) That might've been very purposeful. Well, well, ah, but see, it doesn't. Yeah. But then it it would be nice that it would have resolved. There's so many fine films where like the ending helps recontextualize what you're thinking. Mm. And like, and like, for example, like another uh, film, man bites dog, man bites dog has some disturbing things, but it, it helps indict us and let us like give a second look at some of the things that we were enjoying earlier in the movie, but De Palma doesn't resolve it. He has it and then disappears. And then you get back to the wacky comedy and we're like, wait, what's the, <laughs> am I supposed to be laughing? But also the comedy stuff doesn't resolve. I'm no, okay. oh,
2: That's yeah. all right. Great. <laughs> These are movies that very specifically refuse to resolve.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 I, well, I, I wish it raised to the level of refusal. But ultimately <laughs> I think, but this is what makes it such a great, such a great divisive figure because Anybody frustrated by that is absolutely justified. But the slap across the face that he does is such something that people who've made entire movies and entire careers to look at those kind of anxious feelings and social concepts have never been as successful as what those 10 minutes of high mom are. And he's trying, and he tried
1: later on, we'll get to it with bonfire, of the vanities to have more commentary on race relations, but that's just filtered through both Tom Wolf and the Hollywood system. And the idea of like having Tom Hanks as the
0: lead, which was a bad choice, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. I come from like, like appreciating horror and genre films. And especially for horror, if you're a fan of horror films, you understand that, you got to go through a lot of crap. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that's mediocre and worse. And even movies themselves are, might not all work, but if you get just an exquisite scare uh, or, a gri- or a scene that sets up a great sense of dread, that can make the search all worth it. If you have that kind of feeling on, of movie spelunking, of, ex- mm. of that kind of exploration, then High Mom's midpoint moment is a great example of like, you never know what you're gonna find.
2: <laughs> So we'll go from one cult movie to another one, which, uh, while not quite breaking him into the mainstream, does have a very uh, loyal base of fans. I'm one of them. Which is, okay, then we'll we'll talk about that. It's it's his rock opera, Phantom of the Paradise, which is kind of a rock and roll take on the old Phantom of the Opera story.
1: Yeah, the way people feel about Rocky Horror or, or Jesus Christ Superstar or any sort of rock opera musical is kind of how I feel about this one. I kind of unabashedly love it. I, I I mean, a lot of it has to do with the music. I mean, I think Paul Williams is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. I got to meet him when he, did, when he was in town promoting kind of a rather meh documentary about his life, but I sung the praises of like, I grew up with the Muppet movie and then at some point Late teens, early twenties, I saw fan of the paradise and I was like, i never put two and two together, but yeah, a huge influence for me as a songwriter in general. But I just, I love this movie. I think it's so much fun and weird and subversive and unexpected. And I could just watch Garrett Graham do anything. Uh, I think he's kind of a kind of an unsung comedic ge- a genius at, at at points, like in something like used cars or even in so, uh, something ridiculous like Terror Vision. He's just he's just so odd that I just love his presence and him as beef is one of the great characters. He's like a Frankenstein monster uh, rock star. Yeah. Which which I think must have influenced the Rocky character from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I would think so. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, just like a couple of great sequences, the one where Swan is changing Phantom's voice. I love that whole thing. It's like someone who's kind of obsessive about music and technology and like mood keyboards and stuff like that. That whole sequence really appeals to me. Uh, And yeah, I just think there are kind of really interesting moments throughout this entire film that make it... um, one of his best, if not like one of them is more entertaining. I don't, he doesn't take it too seriously at times. I liked all the TVs with the surveillance mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. So there's just like little touches here that I like, oh, that's a, this is a gym thing. This is a gym thing. I love this. I love that. So.
0: Right, right, right. Like the films, just the fun. films, films, hitting films, hits a lot of things that you, uh, that you really enjoy. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I would have really liked it to, for De Palma to like follow the idea of using technology to take a horrible thing and make it seem beautiful. That's he tries to do that. He he kind of does the yes, or maybe it's opposite in some in a mm. film that we're gonna in a film that we're gonna talk about. But then I really enjoy this film too. I like it a hell of a lot more than Rocky Horror, and I think yeah. part of it is because Rocky Horror is uh, it, it fits the title. They both fit the title nicely. Rocky Horror Picture Show is a picture show to the extent of like just the way a carnival barker in a straw hat would try to lead people (laughs) in the theater. Here's this vaudeville random nonsense where people's, where it's, it's um, absolutely incoherent for for tune to tune or idea to idea. But Phantom of the Paradise to be fan It's like, it's gets something from Phantom of the Opera and it has a little bit of an operatic quality. Sure. The way the Palma puts the accelerator on making everything lurid. There's a, it's a stylization that I find absolutely missing from Rocky Horror. Although not that to be fair, Rocky Horror is using a pastiche from earlier, sure, like sure, RKO sure. studio projects, yeah, but it's another the, mishmash. Yes. But I really like the stylization of Phantom of the Paradises, like the concerts on beef is, is just, is just great. So the, good. The conception of the Phantom with that crazy Hawk cowl of his though, the way he's <laughs> wo- like, Oh, uh, uh, what the idea on one eye, like that's actually a really potent image of that one, uh, that one eye of his it's uh, a creepy stary- look. Yeah. And how that combines in with the spirit when the spirit on rock and roll and and also technology is in one of my favorite scenes is where it's in done in split screen, which it oh, feels yeah. it feels fair to note for those of you you guys listening who are not big time De Palma fans is that more than any other director he likes to use the split screen to go and show visual information in an, in, a, in an innovative way. Yeah. And split, there's a, split diopter and split screens. Exactly. Zoof. Two well, of my favorite well, things. Yeah. Well, the diopter also, that's a, that's basically a shorthand for like, you have an object in a very very close foreground and an object in the background and both of them mm. are in focus yeah. which i like to call the frankenheimer effect john frankenheimer did that in a lot of his films oh well. yeah i can see that sure seconds yeah. and yeah but yeah. the scene that I'm, the scene that i was referring to is is does a split screen where on the left these guys are having a beach blanket bingo and Funicello, frankie avalon type party thing on the set while a bomb is being <laughs> set up on the other side of the on the other side of the split screen and this Combination of rock and roll energy and then suspense is makes them get the other in a really nice way.
2: Boom. So in a surprise twist, this is one of my least favorite uh, De Palma films.
0: <laughs> Haters <laughs> going to hate,
2: Brett. Indeed. And it's surprising because- on, Are you high? <laughs> it, oh, it was, yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: what, what are you saying? You like Gary Marshall?
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, God.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's surprising because on paper- this is all stuff that would be in my wheelhouse but somewhere between the idea and the execution it loses me and i think there's kind of two factors there one is basically what i mentioned before is that i find william finley to be a really poor lead and this even once is, he gets behind the mask even then mm. because with the the traditional phantom story for that to work, even though you don't, you're not on board with what he's doing and the the havoc he's wrecking, you're still supposed to feel some uh, pity for the guy. You're supposed to relate to him as this outcast, and Finley is just doing too much business that distances uh, himself for me. So at no point could I really get behind the Phantom character. But also, I couldn't get behind anyone else. Jessica Harper, uh, as the ingenue, does these very extreme character motivation shifts, where from one scene to that's another, true. that's true. She's uh, either uh, sympathetic on board or just horrible to our lead and mm. selfish. And then Paul Williams is interesting <laughs> casting Very as much the so. uh, Mephistopheles like character, and like there are moments when when I'm like, okay, this this is working, but then it, it doesn't really kind of get to the next level as this is a villain that I can really hate at a at the level you should. And then I think the other issue is actually the music, which I think the music is much better in Rocky horror Hmm. picture show, which is what I think gives that film more of an appeal to me. And I like Paul Williams a lot too. I adore the Muppet movie and every song from the Muppet movie. I even like uh, his uh, songs in Bugsy Malone, which we talked about on our Alan Parker uh, podcast, but I don't know. These songs, which seem to be kind of parodies of different styles of of rock music, uh, there seems to be kind of a distance between the styles and the songs to where he's not really doing the best versions of these songs, Mm. but more making fun of them in a way I'm just not
1: connecting to.
0: There's a only
1: point to that. I think with Swan's character, not being the best judge. I mean, like he kind of at one point that great sequence where he's like sitting on that, uh, the giant 45 like table and uh, going from genre to genre or group to group. I really like that sequence and he finally lands on beef and is just like, yeah, this is it and he's kind of bad, <laughs> to be honest.
0: It's it's weird. It's kind of like for me, I guess a way where I respond on on music is and musicals that I find, I'll find it really disparate when you have like musicals where people start singing and for uh, in the middle of after do, not singing just then for no reason they break out into song and so i think part of the musical format makes me way more acclimable towards looking at these different genres and also helping indulge into like the scene you described jim like it, it like it gets, gets a little of the ken russell and tommy quality mm. to it I like that kind of overheated pushing the boundary examination onto a feeling of music. I I guess in a way. Whereas not to rag on Rocky Horror too much, but it was Rocky Horror is more up to me of the Mickey Rooney kind of uh, Judy Garland. Let's put on a show thing, and I like the pulpy feelings that the music of evokes in Phantom of the Paradise more than I like the Let's put on a show like. Although I,
1: I would like to see Tim Curry as the Phantom. (laughs) <laughs> oh, this. that would have changed everything. Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think you make a good point that maybe Finley isn't the strongest yes. uh, actor in the world, but uh, yeah, I don't really necessarily get caught up emotionally in the story. I just find it very entertaining and just fun to watch for the most part. Like I, I don't, that's the thing about most De Palma movies. I, 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 I know that maybe on the last podcast, Uh, like Patrick even brought up like femme fatale was being boring. And I, I never find myself bored in a De Palma movie. I mean, we'll get to a couple that I think are overrated or at least go on too long. But in general, I just, I, I, I enjoy myself. I enjoy the experience of watching something like this, especially in light of like how dark some of his later films get. I think it's just fun to watch this in the midst of all the others.
0: I would have liked some more musical things from him because I, I think, think he's done good with I th- musicals. I, yeah. I think I think he is a good example of a band who has like an album. You know how you have an album where like there's four tracks that are really great, and then a couple of couple of tracks they they're a little filler. <laughs> you just get to the filler, but then you know that like after three minutes. You're going to have, oh my God, this is a great, this is a great tune.
2: It is surprising that there is, there aren't more musicals because one word that I think of when I think of Brian De Palma is operatic. Yeah. I mean, everything is larger than life. There is so much pure cinema involved in what he's doing. And he has worked with some great composers, uh, throughout his career, Ennio Morricone is one Bernard Herman of course
0: Bernard Herman yes Mm -hmm. oh well (laughs) that's quite a get for him (laughs) Uh, yeah
2: not a coincidence (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) So from a cult movie, we go to his commercial breakthrough. And probably the reason that he became as uh, acclaimed a director as he has to the point where we are talking about him today is his 1976 breakthrough adaptation of Stephen King's first novel, Carrie, which I feel is one of De Palma's best works. I agree. I, I am absolutely blown away. By this film every time i see it from sissy spacex just eerily spot-on performance to its yes to its slow build as a suspensor that's actually very original to de palma it's one of his few suspense movies that don't call back to hitchcock and then when you get to the end, you have one of uh, the great moments in, or maybe two of the great moments in all of horror films.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful marriage of so many different things. Uh, again, similar to *Phantom of the Paradise*, there's just a lot going on for this that makes it one of his best for me too. Uh, Pino Danzio's score, uh, Larry Cohen. It's funny, like I never knew until recently that yeah, Larry Cohen adapted this for De Palma, which is kind of great. Um, and I just, yeah, like you said, Brad, this is one of the great horror performances and Sissy Spacek who I don't believe did a whole lot. I know that she worked as a, maybe a set designer or set painter for Phantom of the Paradise cause she was with Jack Fisk right. and she had done Badlands. By oh, okay. Point. Yeah. she done Badlands. Right. Um, But yeah, I just think his sensibilities work really well in the high school arena because everything in high school feels operatic Mm -hmm. and all your emotions are on high and everybody just overreacts to things. And and certainly that opening is just so painful to watch and heartbreaking and really difficult. And I can't imagine shooting something like that uh, with everybody there, but that's just what a way to start a movie with that. And it sort of escalates and builds beautifully into that, into that final sequence, which yeah, it's, this might be when I think about it, my favorite Stephen King adaptation, even Ah. more than the shining. Yes.
0: (laughs) During the period on the, in his writing career, like Stephen King was pretty much firing all cylinders in delivering a great feeling of horror sensation. This is just, I guess one of the epitomes of the kind of, car crash appreciation on horror like this is horrible horrible let's see what's on the next page oh this is even more horrible this this the the way the compelling nature of the uh, of the horror on uh, and what you're saying on high school Jimmy, like i think in this film yeah the more you are a person around high school <laughs> the more that especially at the time the more that would have just a reaction for you because it definitely has these ideas of like the moments that you can look when you if you look back on are like okay that's part of growing up but in you're in the middle of it it is the end of the world i mm-hmm. mean and well being that,
1: bullied in high school felt that way it felt like the end of the world
0: and so this by looking at by looking at this film from uh right from like today's lens i have this i have this weird kind of um u-shaped thing with <laughs> with this uh because to me, it's like three different, three different movies in one. Hmm. It's not completely random, on scene by scene, but that first part, I completely agree with you guys. It's so tough. It's so you really, really feel for her situ- for Carrie's situation, and you really see how oppressed and bereft of help he's, she's going to get from her home life too. Under that, mm-hmm. uh, to a certain like, <laughs> it's a weird analogy I'm going to make a, a reverse Exorcist level. Now the threat is the mother is. You think she's the horror, yeah? Uh, in the yeah, fir- yeah. in the first part of the movie, and 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 it's a sense of actual feeling and empathy. Notice that that's the word that doesn't really come up a lot where for De Palma, but I felt it. It was drawn out really nicely through Sissy Spacek's performance on there. I feel for her all the way through the film, and then I watch as I continue to watch it in the middle part. My opinion diverged a little from the the high school perspective on it, and I just was going. Okay, these guys are a little too (laughs) one-note. Like, Travolta and Nancy Allen's character, they're basically just the most evil ogres you could possibly have, like, scribbled on your notebook in biology about... Like literally, they got nothing better to do than to torment this poor, this poor girl. Well, and, I and, don't
1: think they're meant to have nuance. I think they're just meant to be no, <laughs> that no. But despicable. right, but it's
0: right. That see that that's but that's where my discrepancy comes in because oh, yeah, I felt yeah. I felt a nuance in the beginning. I felt a kind of connection to humanity in the beginning that I felt pulled away from mm. on there. And so at a certain point, to me, the movie becomes then the inexorable descent. And then when you just get into the Mechanics of delivering a horrific situation. Mm -hmm. It's great because it does this in two ways. You first get the horror of seeing her finally get some moment of happiness in her miserable life. Yeah. While keeping you aware that it's ready to be pulled away. Exactly. You're aware of
1: every detail that's going on at that prom.
2: Exactly, and the shot that circles up to where we see the bucket of pig's blood Mm -hmm. in in this really smooth, uh, amazing bit of uh, camera work is so effective. And I I think one thing that also it benefits from is the slow build of it, Mm -hmm. because the horror when it does happen is really earned. There's kind of a duality with the film, and it starts out with the very opening scene because we first head into the girls' locker room. Everybody is clearly older than high school age in the film. It's yep. it's shot like a uh, softcore exploitation film. We return to become uh, De Palma's voyeurs, and so this kind of fantasy is the first thing we see. But because of the way it's shot, it's also kind of creepy. There's something off and wrong about it. And then when she's uh, attacked and has all the the, the tampons thrown at her and, and she doesn't understand what's happening to her with her first period, it now becomes this visceral, realistic moment. And I mm-hmm. think the movie is constantly kind of ping-ponging back and forth between these incredibly human emotions that Sissy Spacek is bringing to the role and and yes other characters being more broad yeah. because when we do get into the climax when Carrie has her revenge we are never not
1: on Carrie's side. Yeah, it plays as catharsis, practically.
0: <laughs> yes. I, I, I'm going to throw a crazy analogy for you guys out, out here. Um, in a way, you might be able to look at this as a sort of a female version of uh, the recent movie called Joker. A mm. person who has, been, uh, who has the whole society oppressed them and releases in a catharsis of pure violence at the end including some things that can't quite physically happen, but you're in a little level of unreality.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're never, on, you're never not on her side. Maybe even arguably at the very, very final scene, you're not even not <laughs> against, <laughs> against her side, right? Sure. Um, that's the case to the more you're in on hating Travolta and Nancy Allen, guess it's very easy to do, but the more you really, really want these guys to get their comeuppance, the more you get... Maybe more than almost any other De Palma movie, you get the pure catharsis as a satisfying feeling. It's yeah. it's really horrific and really bloody and feels very very justified. I don't know about you, but when I when I see those split screens, all the doors are closing and people screaming, I it, was like, "Hell yeah, tear it all down!" Maybe that's where I'm getting sure. my Joker uh, the Joker connection. Yes, yeah, but, but I feel the,
2: more emotionally connected to this than for Joker. <laughs> sure. For sure, I mean, I I like Joker, but it, I don't think it's at uh, the level of this right. film. Uh, and, okay. but but I I do want to uh, uh, reinforce what you're saying about the split screen. He's going to utilize this uh, to the point where it's going to become his signature. I don't think it's ever used better than in in Carrie because the ferocity of the editing in this final sequence as she uh, destroys the school and wrecks this uh, havoc is something enormously intense and in in the way in the way that i think all horror films try to reach this one just reaches this level of chaos where you're just like you're there this is happening
0: mm mm-hmm. and it should be noted that like uh, that having the mo- in effect, becoming the monster of the story and yet still being on the monster side of it is like something that evokes from perhaps the original Frankenstein.
1: <laughs> and it's also a little sad that she inevitably decides I should be dead at the end of this movie. The house is caving in on her. It's not like she tries to run out and escape and join society. She knows mm-hmm. that she doesn't belong. Right, because she's
2: so damaged. And yeah. that's where I think a lot of the scenes between her and Piper Lori raise the stakes because here you have this kind of religious zealotry and you see how that is so destructive to any self-esteem uh she might have been able to build up so again you, the suspense is there even in scenes that don't seem suspense like they would be like when william Cat uh starts to ask her out and she feels like this must be a joke this must be some cruel hoax. It's kind of like a psycho only in the sense that it's a movie that just grabs you and doesn't let you go. Mm,
0: mm. I'm glad you felt that way. And I w it would be great if I was able to more connect on those moments, which were like the idea that sissy spacex realization of uh, on, or humanity would manifest itself more in the middle section of the, in the middle section of the movie for me, those moments of, discomfort in the opening scenes just got muted to the extent where she became basically a, a, a victim, a very, very put upon victim. So almost becomes an archetypal level of like, I can stand until I can't stand hmm. no more
3: mm-hmm.
0: as a horror delivery vehicle. And the ending to- of that, like totally satisfies, but the potential promise of the humanity, which might be there is something I'm not responding to. And then I just have to ding it for having, The I'm not really dead moment (laughs) because the ending. Yes. especially in context of what you guys said about how, how touching you felt the beginning, the beginning scene is because this is Carrie's story. And now you're seeing something where she becomes a monster and you're still on her side, but now you're seeing something that's not even from her perspective. It's some dream sequence that Amy Irving, who cares?
2: (laughs) Well, I care uh, not quite as much as about Sissy Spacek, but we were talking kind of about the cartoonishness of uh, Nancy Allen and uh, John Travolta's yep. villains. Amy Irving is kind of doing a halfway thing, she's through peer pressure. Mm sucked into not treating carrie all that well but you could tell that she actually does have a conscious yeah. that there is some conflict going on in her character so i didn't mind the last minute point of view switch but more to the point i ad- admire it just on a horror movie level because it is literally now the most cliche thing to ever happen in but the, back then, I was. I think that might have been the first time that particular trope was used.
1: Oh yeah, people so freaked out in the theater when this yeah. first came out.
2: I mean, even before Friday the Thirteenth, which has a famous version jumping of out of the that, water of yeah. that trope as well. But I mean, if this invented it, if this is the first one, I actually got to give it extra credit for that.
0: I have to give it a gigantic debit for that exact same <laughs> reason, because that because that that trope sucks. And it's it's a oh, it lazy thing. It's a lazy thing that go. It's a lazy thing that comes in at the end of every hor- to every horror movie. Now, to the extent that it's now this expectation more than like the fifth stinger of an Avengers movie. Now you're like, oh nope, not really dead. Not really dead. Like, yeah, but this it, is a dream.
1: So. I think she is really dead, clearly. Well, but in, her, yeah. in Amy Irving's mind, it's like she has to live with the trauma of what's happened. Sure,
0: sure. You That's know? a way that you can make it fit in the film. But I just mean in terms of making a trope that so many horror movies have relied on and just combining that with the it's just a dream thing and by making that so prevalent for all the values of Carrie, it would have been better if this film and that, or at least that last five minutes had never existed. If just a couple of horror hacks were less slow on the uptake to do that (laughs) stupid device, the movie world would be better off.
2: Well, we will certainly disagree about that. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. But that's fine. Yeah, Yeah. but
1: the one I I haven't—I didn't get a chance to rewatch *The Fury*. But the only thing I remember about that is uh, somebody blowing up.
0: Well, indeed. <laughs> you, you, got the ju- you
1: got the gist of it. <laughs> yeah, that's the only memorable thing about it. The Craig. Fury does two things. It builds
2: on the success of Carrie with telekinesis. With right? another story about telekinesis. Amy Irving is back this time mm. in, in the lead role. And uh, it, definitely it is not a movie at, at Carrie's level. But it also does something else. It predicts the movie Scanners.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Yes, yeah. it predicts several vowels of the movie scares. <laughs> yeah, it's watching the, watching the fury is just really, really interesting for me for, t- for two reasons, one of which that you guys just brought up because it's an interesting connection on Carrie because it's also about a young lady with these abilities that people both don't appreciate or if they do appreciate, it's, uh, it's something to be exploited. It's just that whereas
1: it's, it's a little bit the, like Firestarter then too. Yeah, Firestarters
0: yeah. also a part, mm-hmm. which is another king um, the king connection. Yeah. So that whole that whole idea, that's a kind of an interesting mm-hmm. avenue, mm-hmm. but whereas in high school that feel a high school type movie from Carrie, it feels more natural here, it's kind of a James Bond thriller kind of Right, cuz Kirk Douglas is involved in a
2: lot of espionage business. Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly. And and the um, uh, and John Cassavetes is just <laughs> the thing for I actually personal confessions. I've never liked John Cass a single John Cassavetti's performance, both because most of his performances are of unpleasant people. But he also seems to be trying too hard to be unpleasant mm. on top of that. <laughs> and here's a prime example. He may have been looking at Travolta's, not Travolta's, but Nancy Allen's efforts and carry of like of being a, of being a hideous person and go, okay, hold my beer. I'm gonna be uh, an absolute uh, malevolence yeah. <laughs> malevolent scumbag who is asking for a comeuppance.
1: <laughs> when he gets it. Right? Oh,
0: yeah, he gets and, it big oh, time. Oh, oh, and he gets it. <laughs> and and the other side of which I get out of this is that I am a massive, massive fan of David Cronenberg. I'm a I'm a huge fan of the kind Same of thing he's done. And when I see the Fury, it is such a weird feeling, but it's like... I'm watching a David Cronenberg movie. If David Cronenberg had a lobotomy and would just turn to be a perverted goon, it, there's none, none of the intellectual things about like what it means to have these abilities or how this responds to the body and to society. None of these things are in. Instead, you get this ridiculous James, Bo- James Bondian plot and mm-hmm. combined with the last 10 minutes, which again lead to this moment of catharsis to a character that absolutely deserves it. But once again, as with Carrie, De Palma delivers the goods, the goods being the horror, the horror impulse. <laughs> that is that is how a villain needs to be dispatched. <laughs> and he is he has more than earned it. And you get every every bit of ill sentiment you have towards him, I feel you get to g- turn into pure enjoyment as uh, well, as to what happens to him.
2: Well, despite generally preferring De Palma to Cronenberg, I do admit that Scanners is the better film in, in the two comparisons. I do want to talk about one scene in The Fury, though, that I think is really effective. Hmm. And it's also a scene that was filmed at a... Uh, Defunct amusement park here in Chicago. It yeah, was back in the yeah, seventies. Right. This indoor amusement park called Old Chicago. Right, and there's a scene where the telekinetic uh, powers are being displayed, and as they're walking through, basically each ride that they pass starts to uh, shake and blow up. And just this sequence in isolation is kind of, I think, this movie's
1: moment of brilliance. Hmm. I vaguely remember that Mm -hmm. since this is not really like high on most De Palma lists, I didn't feel the need to revisit it. And plus I was like,
0: yeah, I remember being kind of slow. If I recall.
1: Oh yeah. There, there's a lot
2: of, uh, exposition too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's, yeah, there's a lot of exposition. And then the, the things we were, we were mentioning on, on De Palma's, concerns and lack of concerns just kind of come into effect and this is kind of one of the other of my sore spots upon the palma and it's a very particular thing that he that he does or anti does i think there are certain directors where you may like their movies or or really enjoy them but you also might not care for their movies so much but you're always 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 aware of their intent behind it. Like the works of Paul Thomas Anderson are like a really good example. Like you can get these images and these scenes and the scenes may not make sense, but you know for a fact, you feel it when you're watching these films that this is a director who is putting this image this way. He's making this performance this way. It's colored this way. The camera moves this way. There's a purpose. And there's an enjoyment you can have out of... Saying, "I'm in this guy's hands." <laughs> oh, uh, for sure. And so, I feel in a sort of magical way, De Palma does the opposite. <laughs> it's not even that he doesn't care about the plot of Fury. He's directing it in a way that makes us aware that the plot is completely unimportant, and you don't need to care about what Kirk Douglas happens to Kirk Douglas or how Cassavetes will come through his plan. You just feel okay this is just moving pieces on a chessboard in a random way until we get to the end
2: and i think that's a fair ding on his lesser works sure but i do think his greater works do transcend that
0: mm-hmm. there's ways where his show where his showcase moments or the ways where the moments are next to each other can help move over these things because he can put up a scene where you think okay man i why are we here mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, the the slowness that you're talking on mm-hmm. Jim. It just I don't care where this is and you don't care and I can see that you don't care and so and, and so forth. But again, this is, speaks to my fascination with Cronenberg. Like all this stuff about psych about telekinetics, this is, has such a rich territory, none of which De Palma cares about. He likes telekinesis because it lets things blow things up real, <laughs> <laughs> blow things well, up. Real well,
1: Cronenberg cares about the psychological complexity, exactly. of, of human beings, exactly. Whereas I don't think De Palma does as and, much. And, 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 Although
2: he doesn't
1: carry. So, oh yeah, I mean, no, he I definitely think, doesn't carry. I think you carry. actually have yeah, yeah. this perfect contrast
2: here in uh, th- an effective use of a telekinesis story uh, right next to a mediocre use of the telekinesis story.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good. That's a good point. The high school environment makes that a much more effective cauldron than, yeah, than political machinations.
1: Speaking of young women (laughs) growing up, what about two sisters?
2: Yes, Jim, we're moving now back to one of uh, the first movies that you cannot miss, the Hitchcock comparisons. Mm -hmm. And I think through this next set of movies, it's going to be really interesting to talk about what it means for a director to be so influenced by an earlier director's work and how he uh, does or does not make it his own.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. There's a moment in Sisters where a woman brings a, brings a guy home and then uh, her sister is having an argument in the other room and you don't see what that sister is. And if you've ever seen Psycho... You have an idea of what the nature of that of the nature of that second sister could be <laughs> in the
2: Hitchcockian films. Uh, much like the master himself, there will often be a twist, since these are films that have been around for a while. We we are going to feel free to reveal those twists. Oh so, yeah, spoiler warning for all. Spoil- yeah,
3: yeah. Spoil-
0: Right, and this is a this is an interesting film f- because it also lets me think about what does it mean to like. Sometimes you can get really involved in a film, but sometimes it's also interesting to just take a step back mm-hmm. and think of what is he doing and how is he approaching the Hitchcock one. De Palma has been known, he has this reputation as a Hitchcock rip-off, rip-off
1: artist. artist. Yeah,
0: But people who are more charitable say, oh no, he's making homage to Hitchcock. So...
1: Or, or as Tarantino would say, it's kind of an extension of what Hitchcock would be doing if he'd been granted the kind of freedom that De Palma has mm-hmm. in the 70s and, and onward.
0: So I'm rattling around in my head, like, what makes something an homage? Is homage just a more pleasant way of not saying the ugly word rip off? Well, it's, or it's, what does that mean for an homage?
2: I, I feel that it's a sincerity. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that... Brian De Palma isn't doing Hitchcockian stuff because that's the formula that's going to make him money because this is just a gimmick he's found. He is fascinated by what Hitchcock brought to the screen and shares a lot of the same obsessions, the voyeurism, the doubling of characters, uh, the way, exactly. (laughs) I mean, he, he, absolutely feels this stuff in the same way that Alfred Hitchcock himself did. And he's utilizing Hitchcock kind of as a communication tool, as a genre in and of itself. And so it's certainly easy to just rip off psycho. De Palma doesn't go for the easy uh, comparisons. He delves deep into what Hitchcock was
1: doing. Yeah, I I would say so. And and something like Sisters does get into the psychology of of these two women, maybe not as deep as you'd expect in some regards. But I think, like with Homage, I think when you're directly referencing something like he does in The Untouchables, then you go, oh, I know what this is from Mm -hmm. and kind of doesn't do a whole lot with it that makes it his own is kind of questionable. But I think here he takes the Hitchcockian framework and builds on it and makes it his own and does interesting things.
0: And, and sisters, you say? Yeah,
1: yeah and sisters, yeah. because like mm-hmm. he had the less personal, whimsical Hollywood film, Get to Know Your Rabbit, pretty much failed on every level, and he didn't have a good experience with that, so he wanted to do something that was more his own and something that spoke to him. And he read this article in, I think it was like Time Magazine, about Siamese twins, and sort of, almost like with when Wes Craven <laughs> read an article in the newspaper about somebody dying in their dreams, sort of decided I want to make my own story based on something that I that's true apparently and interesting and complex. And yet at the same time, like I think this movie encapsulates the, the like something like the split screen sequence where we watch again, William, William Finley, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Clean up after Marco kiddo's murder and he slips and falls and it's like, in the midst of like all this seriousness he decides to like throw in some levity and some goofiness with William Finley like slipping on the way out of the door and I think like he is able to kind of put his own comic touch here and there but this is mostly a very serious very dark and twisted film that I I find very effective actually like the more I watch it I know previously, like Matt Gamble sort of ragged on this dream sequence in this where it's kind of everything is spelled out to you mm-hmm. directly, but I I find it really creepy and interesting throughout. Yeah,
2: it, it's kind of got a little bit of a, a grindhouse feel to it. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah, I very can see that. early 70s. Uh, or like Giallo. There's a little Giallo. Exactly. There's a Giallo. There's a sleaziness yeah, yeah. to it that, that really works, especially because as you said, it there's these comedic elements, like it starts out with this game show right, called uh, Peeping Tom, uh, certainly an homage to the Michael Powell film, also mm-hmm. about voyeurism. Peeping Tom. This game show is is fairly ridiculous. So we're led into led into this story through uh, comedic moments. There's also the Jennifer Salt character who is witnessing the crimes from her window. So we we go back to. Uh, voyeurism and rear window sensibility. But when, when this movie ratchets up the suspense,
1: it, it does a really good job of it. And I think Margot Kinder is really good in this.
0: Oh, it, oh, okay. I do. I have the completely opposite view. I find her um, maybe, maybe not completely opposite when she's crazy. She's quite convincing on that. <laughs> when, when she is a coquettish person with the uh, Pepe Le Pew, French accent, a, a lot a lot less so she is she is like Naomi Watts from the beginning of Mahalan Drive if Naomi Watts never changed from from <laughs> drive every time she just flutters her eyelids and go Ooh la la, oh that is uh, what's such a I have my knife set let's go home and use it um, just I was just oh God but the thing that helps me really like the movie is that the Peeping Toms show from the very beginning mm. because. If you know about the Michael Powell film, this is a case where De Palma shows his card right to you. It's like, hey, it's a voyeuristic, sleazy kind of thing, but 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 known from a classic film director. I'm making this film that's working on this level, and I'm just gonna we're just gonna have fun together and explore that. And if you look at Sisters with that in mind, it helps the dream sequence at the end quite a bit, which sure. which, which makes nine kinds of no sense. But I didn't mind because it was a case of him going back to like an old Hollywood style. Like it filmed in this this real, in like a real stark black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think the scenes literally have an iris in and out Mm -hmm. as you go from Margot, Margot Kidder's eye. I like those touches. And, and just the way that different people are twins or they're not twins or people from a character, in the movie, who's not part of Margot Kidder's recollection, start appearing in there. Um, it becomes more of like a play, to me, it comes across as more of a playful exploration than, of course, of saying anything is being explained. If you're in that scene and you're saying, well, now we're going to get to the real dark secret, <laughs> the Inception-like secret as to what this is really about, you'll be angry as hell at the end of the Yeah, I, I find
1: myself a little unnerved by just when she goes into the institution and just trying to use the phone and... And then uh, the whole reveal of everything, like the fact that uh, this doctor has been trying to control them for, for as long as he has. And I think a lot of that kind of gets under my skin in a way that makes it more than just like, Oh, this is just kind of playful and fun.
0: So it affects me. It's a nice touch in that moment that, you think these people are working for the uh, institutions. They're like, no, they're a part of the inmates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's really like a awkward.
1: seconds kind of a thing going on there for a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's a question of, you know, how
2: important is realism in these kind of films? Because I think you can have that emotional effect without a film being completely believable. And mm-hmm. I think it's important that the tone is set very early, that this is very much a heightened movie. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. can go in all kinds. that's why the, the accent certainly doesn't bother me. I don't think it's any kind of professional uh, (laughs) accent that, that Kidder put puts on, but it is consistent with the tone of the film.
0: mm -hmm. Like it's also cool that the peeping Thomas becomes a fake out in a weird way about like how you were, I really like your point on Carrie about how you're, you're it's, Presented in a voyeuristic kind of way until the until the really uh, horrible things happen, and it's a sort of way you can check yourself. You sure, check sure. your expectations. Same thing with Peeping Toms. You're seeing a voyeuristic thing, and then you're explicitly co- it's explicitly the rug is pulled out from under you. That is a cool example of priming the audience. Really nice because it lets us take a step back and go, okay, let's just, just let's not overindulge on the lurid parts of it. Let's take a step back and look at what. What makes Margot Kidder's character act mm-hmm. the way she does, yeah. and the other way she, mm-hmm. and the other way she does? Also, really nice look on the race or racial relations because sure, sure, when when he reacts to go, oh, you're going to Staten Island, and also he's the one African American presence in Staten Island. That's a, a a very nice detail. I think that uh, the story develops.
2: The other thing that uh, Sisters does that's going to be very important. Throughout De Palma's career, is this idea of doubling and oh, yeah. of two characters who look or are somewhat the same and being interchangeable? He'll develop entire movies around this theme. And so, looking at this as kind of the baseline of
1: one of uh, De Palma's
2: obsessions makes it even <laughs> so more no interesting. Pun
1: yeah Mm. uh and yeah thematically i think he's just fascinated with duality and juxtaposition i mean clearly it's like even just the split screen (laughs) it's literally let's split this into two (laughs) so you can get two different perspectives
0: Mm -hmm. yeah but um what do you guys think of that last image
1: i love it i laugh (laughs) (laughs) that's a good halloween costume i should just like climb up on a pole Somewhere and then just, like, throw a couch in the corner and uh, just pretend I'm Charles Durning, like, looking at a couch for the rest of my life. He, also, any movie is improved by the adding of Charles Durning.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I agree. If it, oh, Yeah, maybe you can CGI him working on a lamp pole at the end of all sorts of films. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny how we're going to talk in a little bit about a sort of take on a Michelangelo Antonioni film, because that is his most Michelangelo Antonioni moment. Uh, <laughs> is yeah. There, is there anything more in a, by way of Herzog's throw <laughs> is there anything more provincially existential as some guy sitting on a pole Waiting examining forever. a couch, which someone may or may not be on the couch <laughs> and will never, and answer will never arrive. <laughs> Ooh, that's yeah. one of the that is spookiest.
3: You are an exception, you're my exception.
2: So I'm going to love just about all of these De Palma Hitchcock homages, which is the word I will be using. I do too. But there's one that didn't work for me, which is the one that uh, came out the same year of Carrie. It's uh, obsession. Mm. I was surprised by this one. Oh, how so?
1: I had low expectations just because I've heard that it's lesser minor De Palma. And when I saw Schrader, he wrote the screenplay. Okay. All right. And even like the first shot is just like this slow little zoom in to a building. I was like, Hmm, little first reform there (laughs) just a little bit. Um, but I'll definitely agree with you in the fact that it's definitely the lesser of all the ones we're going to talk about. Uh, especially in light of Cliff Robertson being the lead, I think he's probably one of the worst, um, performances of all the De Palma films, just kind of stoic and just there. He, he doesn't bat- really care. He
0: he gets below Finley. Yeah, It's, well, it's, so it's, it's, it's the opposite, it's it's the opposite, so. opposite it's, 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 problem.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finley is there's not a lot of chewing f- scenery and doesn't really right. know how to do that properly. Yeah. Uh, Cliff Robertson is kind of
1: doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some Finley of the things just- that happen to him, you expect way more of a reaction and just. <laughs> Yeah, it, he doesn't do a whole lot, but then I wonder—and obviously, spoiler alert—was Old Boy inspired by this movie because good of, point.
3: Yeah, this like yeah. The
1: similar, like falling in love with your own daughter without realizing it <laughs> until the end. That whole thing, I think, just creeps me out. <laughs> Uh, I mean, obviously it should, and it does, so I think the way the story plays out, I did get involved with.
0: It's just so hilarious, I'm sorry, I'm just laughing because it's just so funny, and like, once again, you look at a, a De Palma film, and you go... Ah, what would a pervert do? <laughs> like, hey, hi, mom. Hey, what if? Hey, what if the rear window premise was done by a well done by a perv? Hey, what if Vertigo? What if the plot of Vertigo was <laughs> pretty done? much, but it had a dis, but it had a really disgusting twist. Well, well and that's the thing. Kind of, also, yeah. is there is, is so Vertigo.
2: little variation between this and Vertigo. and no, I think no in just kidding. about every other situation, mm-hmm. we're going to see De Palma make the story his own, and I don't think he does that here. I think it is just too Vertigo. Then we have to buy uh, Genevieve Boujou as both an adult person
1: and her own daughter, uh, and that's um, a lot to buy. <laughs> yeah. I guess, yeah. I'd say so, but... And you got Lithgow as a is the villain for the first time I think in De Palma's is this is I think it's the first time they were together right? I, I think so and and, and that is a good maybe discovery. the greatest uh, value here
2: yeah. is that we finally are are brought to John Lithgow who is one of my favorite character actors and will elevate every De Palma mm-hmm. film he's in honestly
3: but,
0: in a way you may I'm, I'm just gonna throw this out there what do you guys think if Lithgow might be like De Palma's muse, something who gets his <laughs> essence of things in a way to like how Klaus Kinski is Herzog's muse, or De, sure. De Niro is Scorsese's muse. Like, like De Niro gets the violence part, but also gets the guilt and the and the and the, repre- and the repression part. And, and yeah, yeah. Kinski gets that uh, force of nature, sense of things out of control. He gets the Herzog sensibility, and Lithgow in a way. Kind of gets the De Palma sensibility because he is menacing. He can be really suspenseful, but yeah. he's also funny.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he. he I, th- I. think he pretty much works in every De Palma movie, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. It might have been interesting to have him as the lead yeah. in this instead of Cliff Robertson.
0: So, so the level where you get in a, a out performance, there's a kind of one kind of ideal way of horror and suspense. There's, you can be put in a certain place that I think is epitomized in a scene from uh, John Carpenter's The Thing remake where uh, a character, while seeing a, a dead body's head sprout tentacles and attempt to scurry away, just says what everyone in the, in the movie is thinking and everyone in the audience is thinking, you you've got to be fucking kidding. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that feeling, I feel, Blitzkow is able to deliver in a way De Palma movies have like almost no, almost no one else. And to the extent of where you call something a rip off, the way I would like kind of define it is that when you're clear that the reason that he's using an effect is just for that effect alone, like, Hey, this vertigo store, the vertical structure, it's great. Let's go use it.
1: How many directors saw Pulp Fiction? Are like,
0: let's do that. Yeah,
1: exactly. Le- exactly. And just say, I'm not as down on that. As a lot of people seem to be like, even with Paul Thomas Anderson early on, oh, he's just remaking Scorsese and and Altman movies. I'm like, but I like Scorsese and Altman movies. It's Uh, it's how you do it. Because whereas I think
2: his take on Vertigo in this case fell short, I absolutely adore his take on Psycho that we're going to talk about next. Yeah. And I'm referring to his 1980, I believe, classic, Dressed to Kill. Dressed to Kill does take uh, a number of psycho elements, so really spoiler alert here if you haven't seen it, because our main character we're following is Angie Dickinson, and she does not remain our main character throughout the entire movie. Mm. But before she leaves, there's just so many amazing pieces of film surrounding her character. Oh, yes. Uh, Probably the best of which, and what might be the best sequence I've ever seen from De Palma, is the uh, scene where she's being followed in the art museum. The camera work on this thing is beyond. Uh, Every frame is just luscious the music the 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 performances everything is so heightened the way we see this uh stalking scene of which there have been literally thousands in films and i think this is raised to a whole nother level
0: well you're absolutely correct on other level and i think this is the key Thing, if you want to make this mission statement of Brian De Palma's value as a filmmaker in culture and of the value of homage in general, that scene in the museum is exactly what you can show to people. It's exhibit A through Z. Yeah, I would show that
1: in a film class.
0: Yeah. Matt Gamble made a point that makes me completely understand why De Palma was hyped as one of these new uh, Hollywood master filmmakers, despite the fact that obviously his reputation has descended way below or uh, or even people people like like George Lucas. Gamble said it's because that society had started to appreciate Hitchcock, but they realized that Alfred Hitchcock had not been appreciated when he was making these films. Now they have someone of their generation Mm -hmm. who not only appreciates Hitchcock, but he's doing it. He's actually doing the Hitchcock thing to an extent that no other filmmaker is doing to that level. This is a case where you can put the things that people are getting an appreciation for for what, how Hitchcock is able to draw suspense and how it makes a dynamic, engaging scene in a way so many few other filmmakers. And now they're seeing it happen in real time. Yeah, And, and I can definitely understand the bandwagon effect <laughs> that comes from someone being able to do that and helping paper over a lot of uh, potential issues in the movie, such as having the world's least realistic prostitute ever (laughs) displayed in in movies. Um, Now, Pretty Woman had not come out yet. (laughs) More realistic. (laughs) Um, To get back to that scene, to get back to that scene, it does exactly what you would, everything a person could wish for, for a person doing an homage to Hitchcock, because the style that it's made... Is a Hitchcock style, but the purpose is something that Hitchcock was never, never, did, never did in his film. It ties into this kind of a burgeoning, incre- increased like uh, level of like hookup culture going on in the going on in the '70s at the time, and also captures that particular thrill of the mm-hmm. pursuit of like uh, of these chance encounters.
2: But the difference is, it's more empowering for women in this case because we're seeing Angie Dickinson as somebody who is unhappy in her marriage and is going to actively pursue satisfaction well, elsewhere. Well, see, that's sure. why
0: that's why it was called. I think we some one of us referred to this as stalking a little earlier, but it's it's actually a suspenseful edge of your seat flirtation. Right, it it's it's really like happens. they're
2: they're both kind of stalking <laughs> each other yeah, in a lot yeah, of yeah. ways. Yeah. But from the camera and you understand point it. of view, you understand lo- why, right? From yeah. the camera point of view, it looks like she's being stalked. But that's one of the things that that raises the the level of the scene and the film is that Angie Dickinson has so much agency here.
0: Yeah, that's sure. very very true. And so that potential promise, the idea that oh my god, you can take all these like. All these parts of like different society, and give this list using Hitchcock's own techniques mm-hmm. to give Hitchcock level suspense to it. It's so astonishing and like, and makes you feel upon it like there's a brand new horizon where all these techniques yeah. could be put into effect. The museum scene does this in a way I don't think any other uh, Hitchcockian devices has ever really done in ju- terms of just saying here's the possibilities of this style of filmmaking to do, to express so much more. And you can go so much further. The attention to
1: detail in that entire sequence is pretty remarkable. And just like focusing on what she's writing down for her grocery list, looking up and then seeing a family Mm -hmm. together where, and then like looking away, hoping to find that attractive man that you understand where everybody's coming from, the motivations, you understand the the, uh, just The arc, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but just the the entire room, the entire museum, you know where everything is, you know where they're at and Mm -hmm. you get really caught up in the moment and you understand where where they're both coming from. And then you finally go outside and if you look really quickly, you will see somebody is there in the frame, (laughs) but very quickly as the camera pans over to the taxi cab.
0: Yep, yep. Somebody picks up the glove. Right. And search just the just where the glove gets lost. Yeah. Where where it, where it's found when someone bends down to pick one up. It's all of that is just is part of this mastered. wonderful symphony for an yeah. opera for an operatic thing about a common human activity that everyone can relate to. It's I mean it hits this on on so many levels to a tremendous success. Like how I was complaining earlier about how like the directorial intent sometimes seems lacking in a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of things, but. When he's on, he is on. He is so delivering on a microscopic level on this one. And also to tie in from what you were saying, Brad, it also helps that this is a really interesting in how it gives agency and sympathy towards Angie Dickinson's character because you basically have the result of one bad sexual encounter of her of her husband and then she complaining about it to her psychiatrist and she's clearly considering having an affair. And yet, There's no judgment going on during the actual museum sequence itself. There's a measure of sympathy that's drawn up by both Angie Dickinson's performance, but since I actually never really saw that in another Angie Dickinson performance, I have to give credit for De Palma for showing her, in that way, her longing, her feeling of dissatisfaction, to get something more out of her life. And And even being willing
2: to have that shower scene, even though she's using a body double to be involved in a scene (laughs) that's uh, explicit with her masturbating in the shower. But on the the other hand, we we find out that this is not just titillation, kind of like the opening scene in Carrie. Nudity is used to... Further the suspense of the story. Yes.
0: When a the Palma film enters the shower, you're gonna get some. You're gonna get. Some, oh yeah. Some you're some gonna get stuff coming out. <laughs> right now to distinguish this from Carrie, where in this one the turn, the thing that lets us reevaluate is that like, okay, you're thinking it's just one kind of sexy movie, and then it's the violent side. The mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole impulse that has inspired so many slasher movies is is really comes comes across here, and then. Just like if the museum sequence is the best of De Palma, the scene immediately after it is kind of also where it curdles. It's not the worst of De Palma, but remember how I was saying how it was so cool about how it doesn't have her judgment until it passes judgment on her character. She, she has to be, not only does she have to be brutally killed, but in a moment that almost would require us, us, might as well have had De Palma play a sad trombone in the background with a dioptic lens. She finds out... <laughs> exactly <laughs> she, find, she finds out that oh her one liaison and he has to be the guy with venereal disease exclamation point Right? Yeah, which we know that they all put on medical uh, yeah, right. well to be fair that disease must have been extra venereal
1: <laughs> yes
2: indeed so yeah as, as strong as the character work is here there are some let us say out Dated views on sexuality in the film. Uh, as we're recording this, the uh, Disney plus service has just launched and they've put dun, dun, dun. some uh, warning labels uh, after before some old uh, cartoons about how these depictions are outdated. And I think uh, when it comes to, in this case, issues of uh, uh, sexual identification, we can have that same warning
0: label. Here. Certainly. Yes. yes, this is right. If Disney puts these less, less appropriate to modern times things in a vault and gives us a disclaimer, when it comes to issues of, of sexual identity and people of transgender nature... This is the kind of movie that you have to go down to several concrete bunkers and you have to put on a hazmat suit and you have to take some tongs and, mm-hmm. and hold this at a safe at a safe distance of a Geiger counter ready to slam a door on it if it gets because this is radioactive towards any sense of enlightened attitudes that but we have But you have, have today. Phil Donahue explaining it sure. all
1: to you it's, at one point. Right, it's Phil- an
0: actual clip from his show. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And Phil that's actually one of the tamer parts because right. Unfortunately, in how it's used, in fact, how the issue is always, always raised in Dress, in dress to Kill as a measure of, of sideshow circus geek gawkery. Right. It's always like, oh, God, look at those people. Yeah. <laughs> now, to to be
2: fair, this was also inherent in Psycho. And while I saw, oh, yeah, well, the yeah. explanation of why exactly. Yeah. And just the idea that, uh, cross dressing or transgendered issues is an excuse for exploitation, for fear, for suspense is problematic mm-hmm. on a genre level. Though I have to admit in the second half of dress to kill, it continues to be effective purely uh as a horror film uh michael kane gives a very interesting performance in this role it's definitely got levels to it he's one person like duality he's one person uh, to the world and he's another person underneath and that raises the stakes as the search for the killer uh continues
0: i have to say that i watched this re- just recently for the podcast and if you really stare at what Michael Caine is doing, even when he before he looks in the mirror and they pull like a William Defoe and Green Goblin uh, slash Smeagol arguing with himself stuff, like that's obvious. But when you look at him, whenever someone rather too ridiculously sexually propositions him out of the mm-hmm. blue, you can see it. It's not like a Dreyfus twitch from Inspector Clouseau uh-huh. yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. but there's a little t- switch to his countenance that. Kane's delivery here. Yeah. This is not some sort of like Jaws 4 paycheck role for him.
1: <laughs> no, yeah. He's he's really good in this and very subtle in that regard. Uh, I really like Keith Gordon essentially playing De Palma. He was kind of a nerd with electronics and things on early on in his life. And so him like try, <laughs> Keith Gordon trying to build a giant computer of some kind mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly like taking out his skills to find out who killed his his mother yeah, it's right. is really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Out. Yeah.
2: You've Rather. got a lot of cool chemistry then going on after Angie Dickinson departs with Keith Gordon and then Nancy Allen. Yeah, uh, yeah, they Brock, work well together. Uh, and, and then uh, Dennis Franz putting in some of the comic <laughs> relief as the police uh, inspector.
0: Franz is just, ridic- is just ridiculous <laughs> as the, um, uh, but in an entertaining way as just uh, like officer scumbag PD. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that dynamic with the idea of him being a surrogate for De Palma is really interesting. For one, it helps illuminate this idea of, like, his adoration of technology is kind of gets to, like, some George Lucas adoration of technology level, but obviously De Palma's films are a lot more forthright in saying about, like, uh, uh, especially sexual urges that drive them, which makes it really interesting to me that unlike any other De Palma character... He is a young teen boy who has a prostitute stay over at his place, who has absolutely no sexual (laughs) feelings towards this prostitute. He might, but they're all internalized, I think. I don't see any example (laughs) of of even a sort of like, oh, hey, you're pretty. (laughs) Mm. Uh, Which is like, considering the absolute leering of the guy wearing sunglasses in the museum scene, is, and uh, again everybody else, including Michael Kane. <laughs> I, I think Keith Gordon would disagree that, with you. Uh, <laughs> that his, uh,
2: his character's mother had just been knifed to death shortly before.
0: Mm. Okay, <laughs> right. But nevertheless, the movie puts us in a situation that was similar to that in the aptly named Risky Business. And yet for a filmmaker who has so often, been uh, not shy of presenting the salacious side of things or even acknowledging that they're there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There is no acknowledgement there. Of course, again, it's helped by the fact that Nancy Allen is again, the world's worst prostitute at times. she cracks streetwise with Dennis Franz until, Oh wait, talking streetwise to my, this cop will get me in jail. Oops. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm, I'm in danger from this, uh, from someone chasing me. I won't go to any authority figure. Instead, I will go to a, uh, this group of uh, tough looking guys and then just hang around and and, and big smart out remarks. Oh, whoops. Looks like I'm in trouble again. And I'll have to admit, there's a scene which literally had me be the prototypical like loud mouth person in the back of a movie theater watching a horror movie where she is in the subway car with the killer on one side and then the, <laughs> and the gang oh, of people yeah. on the other side. There's an officer in the middle and the car with her. The officer leaves the car and she stays. And I was like, will you get out Wasn't of there? Wasn't she blocked and like she had to stay? No, no. She, no she stayed there until she realized that the, ga- that the gang of people, oh, they're in the subway car. Imagine that they got in the subway just like I did. And then mm. she, she, she realizes too late as the doors are closing. And God, the film after Angie Dickinson leaves the scene, like the the films like just kind of loses me because of just scene after scene of where De Palma's not caring about the machinations of the story. Like hmm. one particular one was like how when uh, Keith Gordon's character is trying to look at someone in a uh, window of a first floor of a new and he does this by using his binoculars in the middle of the street, <laughs> which even <laughs> though this may be New York in a more crime ridden era, I got to figure someone's like. Hey, dude, what are you doing?
3: (laughs) You would think. What
0: what, what, what are you going out and doing? And then like how they have photographic evidence of the person who Nancy Allen had realized was assaulting her. And that's not enough to go to the police. But this is not that kind of movie. You can't logically piece this stuff through because it does. It starts losing, losing, making Right. It's still heightened.
2: I think it's heightened in a different way in the second half because we're now following these more innocent characters and we're also learning more about the killer. Sure, And I think just as we had a hell of a lot of great suspense at the beginning, as we build uh, to the climax of the film and we have uh, just this wonderful scene where uh, shoes become the MacGuffin of uh, what are they doing there and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think the movie ends with a bang too.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, that's yeah. Another dream sequence, shocking. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> want to. Ta- I definitely want to look at that. I definitely want to look at that ending and, and see what you guys think on that. I, I, I just but two quick notes for me before that. One of which is that so many times someone gets upended by someone who's. You don't know who they are. It turns out oh it's somebody else, including most obnoxiously, oh this lady cop who's never shown before and then and then oh we never see her again. <laughs> and just like would it kill for someone to have a Brunette wig. <laughs> no, no, that was a cl- this, <laughs> no that that's a
2: classic suspense move because she looks like the killer. Sure, uh,
0: and so that
2: actually I think was executed perfectly.
0: I was taking well, I was taking a step back to go that maybe DePaul was making an explicit comment about Hitchcock's later obsessions with icy blondes. It's like oh, these blondes are everywhere. I can't know <laughs> it. I, I can't know which person in the blonde wig to go and trust. Also, I would have really, really loved to have a pair. Uh, Uh, maybe Mel Brooks could have had a parody of the Palma movie where there's a split screen where Michael Caine is desperately trying to get back into his female outfit, and he, but it's, oh, the class are so hard, and like, I gotta get this button, and Jesus Christ, is she still there? I, I hope she's still there so I can kill her. He
1: must have done something in High Anxiety, I would think. <laughs> That's similar. Well, he might
2: not have heard, well, he did a psycho thing in High Anxiety with uh, the newspaper, yeah. right. but I don't think Brooks, don't had, give him a tip. I don't think Brooks probably had heard of De Palma at that probably. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, but now, what did you guys think, of, what did you guys think on the ending? Because, it's working a little bit of a sister angle of hey, whose life is this anyway?
2: Just like the ending in Carrie kind of makes the point of psychological violence can continue even beyond the physical violence.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right, so maybe the fact that the ending is in a shower mm-hmm. and and that also that it resolves itself was a dream is a case of showing the trauma just passes itself along through uh, uh, through different people, and then, like, different women can find themselves in a similar uh, box situation. I guess if Nancy Allen's character decided to just try to stop the call-girl lifestyle, that might have worked a little better for me, instead <laughs> of going, hey, you really like that nude scene in the beginning? Here's some more of it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Speaking
2: of Nancy Allen as a call girl. Yes, yep. where, where uh, Dressed to Kill ends. Second time's a charm. <laughs> where Dressed to Kill ends, blowout begins with a uh, scene of a, a woman under attack, but this time in the context of being in a movie, being filmed with the sound designer played by John Travolta.
0: Mm-hmm. in what might be his best performance, even more so than um, Pulp Fiction. It's close. It I is. think it's close. Yeah. Unlike so many of his characters, including his hitman character from Pulp Fiction, he is a professional. <laughs> he, mm-hmm. is, he, he is somebody who has this dedication towards getting this technology right, and much like De Palma's contemporary Francis Ford Coppola's film, The Conversation, that particular obsession of getting technology right which actually very much so, which is actually kind of similar to the way how like Keith Gordon's character in dress to kill is measuring out at certain times Mm -hmm. and, and, and building these mechanisms together. But here it's done in a, in a really, really great shot. Like uh, as he's piecing the things together, the camera's continually moving. And and as it's moving the 360
1: of, yeah. When he's realizing all the tapes are erased, Mm -hmm. it's Brilliant. brilliant. We have
2: some non Hitchcock homages here, definitely to the conversation. And also to the movie that the conversation had some homages to, Antonioni's Blow Up.
0: And I like this movie quite a bit more than Blow Up. Um, Me too. uh, You should. It's. (laughs) Why do you feel that? Well, I just I I,
1: I'm I don't know Antonioni again kind of a bit of a blind spot, but I just never really connected with with Blow Up the the way I have with this. And again, it's personal mainly because I love. Obviously, piecing together audio, surprise, surprise, uh, and going through the minutia of it all and watching him work is just a thrill. Voyeuristically, especially if you wanted to ever get into film at some point in your life, you get to do that. You get to experience that here in a way that's you get really intensely involved with what he's doing, his process, and you want him to succeed. You want people to believe him. You want all the pieces to come together in the way that he wants it to happen for 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 him and to and for people to just realize there's a conspiracy going on. And this is also a political conspiracy film. It's one of the best. I think yeah. it
2: stands up there with the uh Parallax view in Three Days of the Condor as that kind of movie. Mm -hmm. And it even calls back to De Palma's own early work in in Greetings, where you have a uh, Kennedy assassination enthusiast trying to uh, recreate uh, that conspiracy. Here we see the conspiracy play out, and it's another one of De Palma's brilliant sequences with a scene-stealing
1: owl. (laughs) Oh, yeah, do I love that? Yeah, Yeah, every little sound quality going on in this soul scene. It's like you really start to pay attention yourself the
0: way he is. It's such a great bridge between these different genres. The parallax view and the conversation due to our feelings of ambiguity and uncertainty about the political world and the societal mm-hmm. world, in a way through technique that Antonioni touched on with blow up, but but blow up was this a rich douchebag removed from it. It's like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. oh, what is the meaning of life? Let's go to this birds concert where no everyone's so <laughs> disaffected, and doesn't even matter if someone's killed. Sure, yeah. Let's just play mime tennis instead, shall we? It's like, oh, fuck off! Like the palmas' epic vulgarity can only be a help to these things mm-hmm. because its earthiness grounds the story. Yeah, it's by just having this this ordinary schmo who has a fairly disreputable gig working in the, in the lower rungs of the film industry, just having a guy like that, try to like get more sense of control and sense of understanding through this mystery plot just connects to us in our way of like, we're trying to get more understanding out of the vast flow of information that's around us. Yeah. It's
2: the idea of helplessness. I think is a big theme here because even though he's able to rescue the girl, he Finds that protecting her and, and keeping her safe is a whole nother story. And that could be looked at as analogous to the idea of what can we really do to change the political situation when corruption is oh, yeah. clearly run amok to the point where candidates are are being assassinated.
1: Yeah, he wants to have control, but clearly you can't control every element that's at play here, mm-hmm. including... John Lithgow again uh, playing a psychopath. Who's I know that the, the initial argument on the f- on the first De Palma episode I did was really like that was superfluous. Like just having him walk around stalking another woman that has nothing else to do with the plot is just like De Palma getting off on the usual De Palma isms. You have to set up your threat. Yeah, Because if we see
2: that he is going to be the main threat to our characters at the end you can't not establish how dangerous he is sure
0: Mm. the sequence itself is filmed well but you already did that from the first time he killed somebody so in other words not necessary yeah it's completely superfluous to the story somebody on letterboxd he had a one sentence review of this film where he said now wait a minute am i supposed to believe that in order to hire a contract killer, you hire a serial killer. <laughs> and and uh, cuz that's what you know about serial killers, you can trust
1: them to stand. <laughs> well, I think he was trying to establish a series of yes. killings. Right. right. It was, the it, it idea was covering the, his own I mean, own maybe track. we didn't have to see it as an audience, yes, right. I guess. It was like, right, to cover it up. I didn't own, mind it. Uh, it's
0: right. not he something. was
2: an assassin as opposed to a deranged person on the yes, street. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. But to me, it calls to mind a great line from the uh, Simpsons off show, The Critic, where <laughs> the people are on a plane and then somebody runs up from the cockpit and goes, oh my God, a penguin's flying the plane and he's drunk. Also, the luridness also hit me in a bad way because it was coming at odds with something that was actually keeping a fair distance from, uh, again, like the Travolta's characters working on these films of kind of less repute, but it wasn't really salacious on that way. Um, And so... Now that it starts to get like, oh, is this woman's going to be brutally? The, the, the shot of Jallo, that was an element that I didn't feel mixed so well with the um, conspiracy side with like the existential what does it all mean side. And a little dash of bitters in this particular martini, I guess. I, so.
2: I thought the, that side of it, I mean, it is very De Palma, but I thought it added to it because mm-hmm. you do have all these events having a personal effect on, our, on the Travolta character, you also have a really nice relationship with Travolta and Nancy Allen, who this time is kind of affecting a little more of a, of, of a dim uh, bombshell yes. kind of thing.
0: But it's it's charming. There's a weird Bob Hope, Bing Crosby series of films that early Hollywood could have made about the abusive relationship between her and Dennis Franz as another, yeah. authority, <laughs> as another authority figure who, who still has zero respect for Apparently her. Apparently it just right. takes
1: one hit of a bottle to knock him out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not
1: everyone can take a hit of a bottle.
0: This is yeah. one weakness, this side of, a sh- ironically, a shower.
2: <laughs> but, but all this um, jallo stuff really pays off in this movie and because i think if uh, dressed to kills moment of greatness is the museum scene this one might be the actual climax itself where and uh, spoiler alert john travolta is unsuccessful in uh, saving nancy allen and she is killed and this pain is shown visually in an extraordinary way because it's uh, i believe a liberty day in philadelphia and so there's fireworks going on throughout the sky and the shot of him cradling her dead body and the look of anguish and pain he's going through and the camera contrasting his character work with the fireworks going up in the sky is just uh one of those
1: unforgettable pure cinema moments it is and that score the piano score in this is one of those where i was like yeah, if if I could ever make a movie, I'd want to have somebody rip this off because it's so beautiful. Mm. I love it so much, and then of course it's used like really briefly in Death Proof, mm. which made me happy anyway because nice. I'm like, yeah, Tarantino, you can have it. It's fine.
0: In a way, it's almost like I wish that there were more OmniBus films, films where you have like <laughs> each director takes mm. on a, tackles a certain subject for ten to fifteen minutes, because this is a case where I think in three or four scenes. De Palma is does damn near perfect on that. Like that ending scene is great. If you just took it from the sense that for some reason he has to go and uh uh be listening in on the conversation and he has to have these obstacles, and it's just a given. Unfortunately, the the ten minutes before, logically speaking, it's not actually a given at all. He could actually have been nearby. He could have there's no there's no explicit reason for I why agree, and Patrick and I
1: had this argument. Like the yeah. fact that he went through a horrible experience involving wiretapping when he was a cop should have indicated to him that let's do this differently this time. Mm. Yep. You know, like I should have learned my lesson from this experience and he doesn't, which is interesting to me that he doesn't, that he decides he's almost basically like, I want to recreate what happened before and hopefully it goes right this time.
2: Well, it takes the helplessness theme even deeper because he is so impotent in doing Mm -hmm. this this thing that he needs to do to have any kind of closure to this situation. And so he faces another tragedy. Yeah. And then that leads to the end ending, which uh, takes on a very strange tone when we go back to the film that they're making. And he has this time found the perfect scream which is the dying scream of Nancy Allen? This is pretty provocative, but yeah. I think it's also really shows the pain this character is going through in an incredibly visceral way.
1: Absolutely, one of my favorite endings.
0: Mm. It's uh, delivered very, very nicely by Travolta, but the implications of it are absolutely horrible. This may be one of the most uh, yeah, it's, it's dark. Well, yeah. Well, it's also one of the most—it's also one of the most horribly uncharitable things you can—you uh, that the Palma has depicted. Because it's one thing if you have that sound, okay. Which, by the way, might be a little tough to do if a bunch of fireworks blowing up—that you get it so nicely. Um, but it's another to go and use it for a product that's going to be sold for the turgid delight of whoever's going to be watching this movie. That is exploitation with a capital triple X, man. And that got me nauseous when I saw it because up to that point, I was on Travolta's side the entire, he was the kind of Hitchcockian maybe character who is a guy who's like onto a mystery. He's just an ordinary guy who just has a skill and he's using this skill to just try to get to this heart of this, this these real gigantic problems. He helps to go and save a, save a girl. And like, Realize that the import of his a potential import of his actions, and so for me, the transition from this guy went through a whole lot. I really feel for him. To this guy's a fucking scumbag was instantaneous for me. On that, to use that and go and sell stuff is a horrible, horrible thing for a human being to do, especially at that particular moment of tragedy. So his crying, however effectively delivered, was. Screw you, pal. That's that's your own psychosis.
2: I read that a little differently. Although I do, th- <laughs> I, I think do think it's I think his. So. I do think it's his own psychosis. But it's a much more complicated psychosis than him being a, a scumbag. I actually would compare him to Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo in this moment because mm. if you think to the end of Vertigo, when Jimmy Stewart has for the second time failed yeah. uh, to uh, to save somebody. And we don't see then what happens in the aftermath of that, but we can only imagine what state of catatonia uh, he Mm -hmm. must have ended up in. And I think that's kind of the state John Travolta's character is in here, is that he is so broken, he has so failed, every standard he holds himself to as a human being, that he basically said, fuck it. If all I can do is my job, kind of like harry call in the conversation if this is all i can do i'm going to do it and if this and if if using her voice is painful to me i will embrace that pain
0: mm, that's a good way mm. to look at it mm, yeah that's a, yeah that's a great way of looking at it um i wish it had a more of a vertical effect of being clear that there's a way that it could have been a much more satisfying movie for me in that if it made clear that His wiretapping was not just some dumb convolution of the plot, but rather Travolta's character's obsession with technology. It's like, no, no, my gigaw will help save the day. Because what makes it work better in Vertigo is that it's clear that it's a Stewart's obsession Mm. that's making things turn sour. Sure, sure, sure. Because, hey, he's facing against a contract killer who also moonlights as a serial killer. He's like, (laughs) what chance did did he really have against somebody, a threat like Lifkowl? Not a whole lot. So it's not a lot of his own fault. It, if it was delivered more of his own fault, that would have been a lot more effective. But I do like what you said about the idea that like every time he hears that movie, every time he's going to work on that movie, he's going to get it reflected back on it. But it's also a movie that people are going to see. Maybe he's doing it to respect. torture himself
1: for yeah. failing.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. but then you can... Yeah, but save that shit for your home, man. <laughs> save, save, it, like, also, it's going to be for the benefit of other people's... Like, but mm, yeah. it's, so psych- it's so psychotic, and it's so dark, and my whiplash to it, my reaction to it is so strong to it that it's worth examining, especially in the light of like this film that's becoming more and more my favorite over the, over the years since I've seen it, uh, Darren Aronofsky's Mother. Because oh, part wow. of a, one of the themes of Mother is very much like, I'm taking this woman... And I'm putting her through this horrible ringer that, that. that might not amount to a whole lot, except that I further my own story. So that's kind of a, something that explored throughout Mother. And I feel, and part of my nauseous reaction is I feel it in one second, the span of <laughs> the 30 seconds of the scene in Blowout. Now, that sense of things being inappropriate works itself in all sorts of a number of ways in the film we're going to talk about next. Body double. Um, you can't get more expressly uh, on the notion of doubles on the on the one hand.
1: No
2: kidding. And
0: more expressly on the uh, concepts of rear window on the, the second hand in, in this film.
2: Body double is fascinating to
1: me. It, oh, it it's is so much fun, too.
2: Definitely. <laughs> Take It's doing this perfect combination of rear window and vertigo in what it's taking from Hitchcock, but then it's taking all the cocaine from Scarface <laughs> and basically amping up mm-hmm. the craziness. This is De Palma's most 80s movie. If these other films were in these kind of dingy environments, this is a neon bright L.A., and it, and it again is looking kind of at the artifice of movie making and of what we see is not necessarily what it appears, but there is such a willingness to just go too far in body double that I'm very charmed by.
1: And it opens with like the monster chiller horror theater, kind of a vibe with what he's being, what's, what's being filmed on set. And I, I love that opening. It's like, here you go. This is going to be a little bit of wackiness too.
0: Like the peeping Tom section from sisters. De Palma is being very, very honest with you. Yeah. And I think the thing that he's being honest about is imagine like the the look at uh things from Hollywood and the Hollywood scene, if it was from the viewpoint of a horny teenager who ha whose only knowledge of Hollywood is his Star Wars action figures. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: So much stuff is bizarre in a way that, like, a small child would, like, that drill is way too big. <laughs> yeah, that, but it had to get through the floor. That, <laughs> that house. <laughs> well, yeah. you do make a good point, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> reminds me of the scene from the uh, original Wicker Man where oh, sure. <laughs> Edward Woodward is angry about, these women are dancing naked. And uh, Christopher Lee replies, well, their clothes would burn if they were jumping. The <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Makes some sense. <laughs>
1: Well, again, the only weakness for me really is just the cat, like the lead guy, who Bill Maher. Oh, we're gonna. Um, oh
0: no, we're gonna get to him in a second. Yeah. But I feel if you look at this in a concept of like what a um, uh, what is like a horny little kid's uh, view of Hollywood is like, because look at that house. That house is like almost like if someone decided to build the um, aliens from H. Pal's War of the Worlds. Yeah that house is is and absolutely yeah. a monstrosity that yeah.
2: you cannot look away from it. <laughs> yes it's exactly. like is this really exist? And I just love the fact that he's just very casually from his buddy in acting class. Yeah. Do you want a for house You want a house
3: sitting yeah. in
1: and then he's in Oh then check this Z- out in this telescope I have over here.
2: Right.
3: Yeah <laughs> right. exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And then the bad guy is just like oh my god, I have never seen a more weathered human being in my entire <laughs> life. It's just like you took like your Danny Trejo action figure from The Expendables oh and you god. stuck it in the microwave for 30 seconds. Like, like the idea that anybody would... Be I wonder if he's impressed. wearing makeup. Yeah. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just so, it's just so overdone. Right to the point the yeah. fact of like, he does some of the stuff from Phantom of the Paradise went better. It's like straight up, sticks a music video... In the middle of this movie. Uh, and, and I'm I all adore for it. it. I I'm, I'm all, all for it.
2: That. The, the, yeah. the
0: context
2: is that now, in order to find the killer, he's actually going to make a porno movie. And he auditions <laughs> yeah. and gets the lead role yeah. in the porno film, which suddenly turns into a Frankie Goes to Hollywood <sighs> video with Frankie himself yeah. in the video. I just I thought that it. was brilliant.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's the movie goes into this. A stratosphere of not even unbelievability, but a believability. You're like, okay. At this point, the all the for me, all the structures have fell away, and I'm like, I don't know how to take the right. scene.
2: Well, they were never there. That's the mm-hmm. thing about this movie. Is, yeah. is this movie is structure be damned,
0: yes. and and I think
2: it's the better for it because. Now you just have kind of the purest uh De Palma suspense suspense themes because while everything about the movie is ridiculous the suspense is real. Every point Oh where yeah I the mall like stalking the mall oh. the mall stalking uh the murder is one of the most horrific and effective murders yeah. I've seen and his claustrophobia the way his fears are used against him in the tunnel Everything that's uh, suspenseful here oh, is a home run god. while everything around
0: the suspense is crazy. Oh my god man it just hit I'm so glad you brought that up because now I found like a, a, a framework which both really helps me appreciate this movie a little more and also explains my biggest impediment on it. It's the occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, the Ambrose Bierce story, if if Ambrose Bierce was a horny kid. <laughs> like, it, and I'm glad I brought up the Wicker Man, because if the main character was played by somebody like Nicolas Cage, just someone who is comes across immediately as a guy who... like, Because he, he failed in the Wicker Man remake, because... The Wicker Man is a guy sp- you know, going to an environment, and he finds the environment weird. But Nicolas Cage, by his very nature, is weirder than anything else in The Wicker Man. Well, so, yeah. that's, so it's a complete failure of miscasting. But he would be perfect here because Nicolas Cage has this larger-than-life epic persona that always is about, oh, my God, I'm taking things too far. Things are out of control. Like, mm-hmm. like, could you imagine like a raising Arizona era Nicholas Cage stuck in that coffin? Or react-
1: Vampire's Kiss.
0: Or Vampire's <laughs> Kiss, reacting to the right, which is also about a guy losing his mind, could have uh, in, in in numerous ways, right? But imagine a guy like that, and you made it clear in the movie that he is obsessed with, like, you know, Joe Dante level. Sure, with, sure. With all these classic films, and and uh, especially the the opening could almost be like this, like. Weird tales kind of a uh, comic panel kind of thing. Imagine a guy like that and everything else is an expression of his love of these kind of movies and his fears of these kind of movies, and it's it's just such a personal expression. God, that movie would have worked wonderfully. And in fact, if I mentally put him in the movie and just say, oh, or or for that matter say, imagine Bill Mars in the movie. I do. <laughs> I would <laughs> <laughs> yep. I would I would enjoy this movie so much more. Sorry saying mis- cannot...
2: Mr. Wasan was not to your liking.
0: Right. Craig Wasson is an absolute miracle of acting performance, I think. Because when you see films, you cert- you have there's certain people who have charisma. And what a basic heart is in a charisma is is that when you go and you watch them, they could be doing epic things, but they could be doing mundane things, but there's something fascinating, like like in Cary Grant. Cary Grant could do all sort of comedy, drama, whatever, but you're always watching him. You're always fascinated. You yeah, always yeah. wonder what the hell he will do next. Craig Wasson is a miracle. He does the exact opposite. He's not wooden. He's not bland. The son of a bitch goes and like <laughs> literally sucks all the interest out of a scene. I'm just shocked to an extent. A Rare in a DePaul movie, when I'm watching him in the beginning. He's at this super weird house. That house is so weird. You're captivated by it. Yeah. He's got this view on there. And you've got, like, he's looking at Melanie Griffith and her most nubile. And and, and she's doing this striptease-type maneuver and, uh, on there. And this pulsing 80s soundtrack is playing. Every single other component of this movie is letting you just go, yeah, this is a crazy scene, right? And yeah, cut to a song, mm-hmm. looking through the telescope, it's like... Oh, this asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Every yeah. single time I'm looking at him, and he does a couple of different costume changes, including a Steve Urkel outfit for the, for the Frankie Goes to Hollywood yeah. scene. And he's... It's ridiculous. Yes. He just is not very
2: reactionary. He is a, uh, a charisma void. Yeah. And he, he actually voided a uh, another horror film, Ghost Story, yes! uh, in the same way. <laughs>
0: he's there for like but... five minutes, but I'm
2: already... <laughs> and <laughs> like, he's in oh, Dream man. Warriors, too. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. it. Yeah. So... But here's the thing about this movie. This movie is such a burst of energy and working on such a manic level that it overcomes all of that. The direction basically yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, nullifies the lack of having a proper lead. We brought up before, he's he's not an actor's director in all cases. I think, I re- I read a critic once say like, I think De Palma, he would have been an amazing director of photography, but I don't know if he's a great director of actors. And I was like, okay, I can buy that. Because sometimes there are movies and moments where I'm like, oh my God, this shot is amazing. But th- the acting isn't so great, and we'll get to that yeah, later. There, but, 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 <laughs> there's all, but there's also a lot of exceptions to that.
0: Oh, sure. No, there are. There are. Well, De Palma's super fascinating on that score, yeah. because like we were saying on Dress to Kill, Angie Dickinson, I've never seen her do that those kind of touches. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, she's great in that. Travolta. Yeah. It's, it's one at the very least, it's one of his top roles. Mm-hmm. And so, but like, you get a
1: Craig Watson, you, uh, right, you get a Rebecca l- remain Steamos, You get a you know, felt, a little yeah,
0: bit. Well, Hassan is an eternal Lovecraftian void of, of interest. And for me, at least all the energy that the Puma gives to all those scenes, which I absolutely grant for you guys cannot counteract the hmm. void of this <laughs> of this immovable object that is this that is this guy's performance. Yeah, now, but I enjoy which, Greg
1: Henry and I really think Melanie Griffith is is fun in this. Yeah, this was pretty much her introduction.
0: Between this and Night Moves. Oh yeah, you Night get, Moves. Oh, yeah. well, I was yeah. younger, yeah. Melanie yeah, Griffith, but then, yeah. Well, yeah. no, you get both yeah. films give us the uh "Quote unquote essence of Melly Griffith uh, starts mm, with, yeah, 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 yeah,
3: with the letter J and ends with the
2: letter bait. But in this in this one, I, I do have to give her delivery of the things she won't do as a porn actress. Yeah, uh, yeah she mm-hmm.
3: obviously
0: yeah.
2: interviewed,
1: yeah. Or, you know, interviewed yeah, that's porn that, actresses.
2: And yeah,
0: for me, it sounded like too much like of a, a call for the casting on body double to me. That <laughs> <Like laughs> she's a, a little too fluent on using that line of pattern. Well, she,
2: she will be much much worse in a future development. Oh for, yeah, oh,
0: for very sure, much so. for sure. <laughs> but that whole idea of like how can de palma work on actors and deliver a deliver a particular performance and also how a particular performance can be incredibly at odds with his energy they both flip to work to absolute perfection in the next film we're going to talk about scarface his remake of the uh howard hawks uh, classic about a low-level gangster and his rise to the top and how the world is his for a
3: little while I to the limit.
2: Here we have a screenplay by none other than Oliver Stone and kind of a different uh, setting for De Palma in that this is much more of a Hollywood film. It's a less personal project. It's a movie that was originally going to be made by uh, Sidney Lumet and the results would have been quite different. And De Palma was supposed to make Prince of the city. That's right. They did a little switch. And then we have Al Pacino being brought into the mix who has already established a level of performance. Al Pacino is to say the least at full Pacino here. Oh my my God.
0: See, this is an example of what was such a horrible failure and, and, ill effect and body double. When you just reverse the polarity, you get a guy with a massive amount of charisma, a huge screen presence, and a way of taking over the top in a way that in so many other films and Send of a Woman managed to be like convincing and just delivering the level of energy. God, does that help this story? <laughs> this helps this story immensely to have this guy in the center.
1: <laughs> it's like, a little much for me.
0: Is it? Yeah. Okay. I, I'm not really, cra- it's, it's funny. I'm not
1: crazy about De Palma's gangster movies in general. It feels less personal to me. The Scorsese, he actually said to De Palma, I think after the screening of the movie that Hollywood is going to hate this movie because it's essentially about them. <laughs> and you know, like, yes, Scarface is essentially a Hollywood producer and like, Oh God, look at the mountain of cocaine. And it's like, so over the top and so crazy. And there's chainsaws and things go like, like, I think it just goes too much, too full volume at all times practically. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it it feels long to me. So I just, it's never one I've been crazy about and certainly rap cultures embraced it as this monumental achievement that that they sort of not necessarily like look up to as like, Oh, I want to be Scarface, but they certainly see all the appeal of its extremes and the things that it portrays as being Mm -hmm. kind of, fun in a crazy way, but I don't know. I think it's too much Pacino. It's too much De Palma. It's too much stone. Mm-hmm. It's just too much.
3: Mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I get, exo- I get yeah.
1: exhausted by it.
2: I'm mm-hmm. not crazy about this one either, although it certainly has its moments. Oh yeah, and, it definitely has moments. And it, it, it is a blast to watch Pacino working at this level. And the ending is justly famous as this unforgettable piece of oh, cin- sure. cinematic excess, but it does go for three hours. And for me, it, it doesn't earn it. There's hmm. nothing at the level of the Godfather movies that interest me in the way he builds his power mm-hmm. and removes his enemies and does the kind of things we see in gangster movies. All that is kind of dwarfed by Pacino's enormity. So if we have no, like you were saying, if we have no lead actor in the first one, but everything else happening here, we have nothing but lead actor.
3: Yeah, (laughs) it
0: is. Yeah. It it rides along. It rides along a lot on on Pacino, and there's so many showcase moments where it's, how is this guy going to react? It's even even the poor schmuck who gets chains, who gets cut to pieces by a chainsaw is filmed from Pacino's point of view. It's like, oh god, that's, yeah, yeah, that's happening awful for that's awful for Scarface having to watch this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: the ultimate meme movie, to some yeah. degree. There's
0: just like so many of those moments, and they're memorable. I don't know how much cocaine was taken in between the three leads, <laughs> the, oh, the Pacino stone and uh, De Palma during the making of this movie. All I know is whatever it was, is incredibly high grade just in terms of sheer energy per foot of film. This is one of the most energetic cinematic mm. experiences. It starts off at a pretty high pitch. Like you and, sure. and it's, it gets hired, but doesn't, shoot off into the stratosphere until the very, very, very end, but it keeps raising, it it, keeps raising. it starts off hot, and by the end, it's a completely natural reaction to be wearied about it. What I really like about it, and makes it, I think, more relatable, and makes it more popular, popular consciousness is two things. It is itself. It is about the cocaine highs of getting your rise to the top. This sustained feeling of that. Yeah, that is the some, dopamine rush the dopamine, that. Exactly, yeah. the dopamine rush. And I think the weirdness may be a little part of it, but unlike, say, Wolf of Wall Street, it's not examining it in any way. It's pure indulgence. When Michelle Pfeiffer looks at that car, it's, this looks like somebody's nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it's clearly about that, and it manages to maintain that pulse to it all the way through. In other words, it has one of the things that very few diplomas that we've talked about or will talk about have consistency <laughs> go to the 10 minute point of Scarface and like, yes, this is the same movie with the characters acting the same way as they do. And on the, the half and hour. it doesn't but, get uh, exhausted I'm just not sure that's a good thing
2: Yeah, because it, it has what it has to offer, which is Pacino's energy. And then De Palma's uh, depiction of Miami and the lifestyle. And it's all there. And then you have your standard gangster tropes, but it it doesn't do anything really interesting with them, I I don't think. It is, though, interesting how it was faithful to the Howard Hawks original in this way, Mm. in that we are dealing with a villain who is really hard to relate to. I mean, this is not Michael Corleone, and it is certainly not uh, Carlito, who we're going to talk about later. It is both as played by Paul Muni and as played by Al Pacino, a guy you, you don't really want to succeed. You don't want to identify with him as an anti-hero. He's just terrible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> More or um, less, yeah. It's not to give politics on too much of a level into, into this, but... It harkens back to the kind of reaction that people had when in the OJ trial, when OJ was found not guilty, there was cheering and the cheering was not to the idea that like, Oh, thank God. It isn't man wrongly accused. It was that finally someone from a a part of society that too often was oppressed by the society at large found a way to succeed and triumph over just the adversity in question was the society that the, the very society that a lot of people can like take for granted as feeling, Oh yeah, just works. Yeah. We, we know that like society works for some people, but not others. And so there is, I think part of the reason that this movie has such a draw is because it's also key to why that he's Cuban. And it's also important in the beginning that other people just treat him like crap. And part of it is because of his record, but also part of it is because where he comes from.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that hip-hop culture would embrace this because they've felt marginalized for so long. They can see the appeal of watching somebody rise in the way that Scarface does. I don't think they necessarily want to be him and experience his ultimate downfall. They recognize and, his And course. also,
0: there's, there's a particular kind of... The particular part of the dopamine rush you get is out of all these other people, from mm-hmm. all these other groups who are dismissing him. Yeah. They're yeah. dismissing him and... They're like dominoes. They all get a very nice. It's like a whole mini set of uh, endings of the fury in sequence actually delivered. I think in that sense, the pacing is really nice because Mm. as soon as this one guy goes, Oh, Scarface, you're not going to amount to anything. I run the show now. It's like 20 minutes later. He does yeah. not run the show. But one of my favorite uses of a helicopter, by the way, is how F. Murray Abraham mm. <laughs> meets, meets his demise. <laughs> and, sure. And so this sense of like, oh, everyone underestimating me, like just to quote Pulp Fiction. That's how you're going to get them, Butch. And they keep underestimating you. So that feeling. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. I can I, see I think that. On just, the yeah. sense of, on just that sense of sensation of like the triumph of adversity. It is enjoy- an enjoyable, if exhausting, ride
1: on here. But it's missing the humanity and the empathy. Yeah. Yes,
2: because I think we could find that very uh, path overcoming adversity, uh, even in the gangland setting, in a lot of other movies.
0: That's fairly true, including one we're going to we're going to get to in just a second. But I just have to say, my one perverted kind of enjoyment out of this film is is how. De Palma gets a little too much of his own supply at the end, because when Scarface is supposed to be dispatching a a diplomat and and he's supposed to go and follow and have him killed, it's not enough to have the diplomat's family. It's not as the diplomats have the two little kids, (laughs) these beautiful little cherubs sitting in the back seat, but they're playing patty cakes as he cuts to the back seat. It's like, it's like as if Alfred Hitchcock decided (laughs) to be at his most mockishly sentimental. (laughs) Like, you don't need to, you don't need to do that. And, and also near the end when uh, they're saying, oh, he's, he's jealous of anyone having affection for his sister. And the reason we know this is every single time it cuts to close up, like Sergio Leone level close up of Pacino's eyes as he's looking back and forth, back and forth. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's the level of subtlety we get. There's There's
2: there's where Hawks did it better in establishing (laughs) (laughs) that. Yes,
0: Yes, exactly. This is one hell of a subtlety free film. It's three hours of impulse. Right. I think is one of the better things you can say about it.
2: But somehow De Palma decided to go back to the swell of, uh, the Latin gangster world starring Al Pacino, who is not Latin, uh, this time in, uh, Carlito's way, uh, as a, um, Puerto Rican gangster who has, uh, come back after a stint in jail to try to, uh, See what his place in the crime world is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which the, this movie De Palma has actually said is his
2: masterpiece, which is interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'd go that far, but I do think it's, it's a wonderful film, and every I bit do, I do hum, grow to love it more. Every bit of humanity that is not in Scarface,
1: Pacino mm.
2: brings to Carlita.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. I like, I like this one the most out of all the gangster films, for sure. A lot of that has to do with Pacino's performance, and it's not like over-the-top hoo-ha Pacino at all levels, and I think that helps. And you understand his plight, and you also understand the, f- the fact that he just wants to... Be a normal dude and find a normal job and have a normal life, but he can't. I feel for like the relationship he has with uh, Penelope Ann Miller, I think, and just like the conflicts you have with with great uh, supporting characters like um, John Leguizamo, uh, Louis, Benny Blanco from
0: the Bronx. Of course,
1: of course. (laughs) But that being said, like I, I think I know who's going to shoot him at the end from the very beginning. Well, once this character is introduced, I'm like, I know who's going to kill him. But the ultimate build up to that, and certainly the entire sequence like the last 20 minutes of this movie is pretty much another head rush mm-hmm. of excitement and tension oh, and suspense the, and just incredible cinematography the mm-hmm. action scenes here yeah. are magnificent you have yeah, beautifully the scene
2: in the pool hall beautifully staged. and then uh, at the end the scene with the escalators in, in mm-hmm. the train station I mean the choreography yeah mm-hmm. on these action sequence is amazing and even more notable when you think of how much of the movie is not action and is more character building mm-hmm. stuff that, that De Palma is able to balance these two elements so wonderfully.
0: Yeah. Masterpiece is used often as a term to say best movie. And I don't agree with that definition. I think uh, I think he
1: had the most satisfying experience making this movie. And mm-hmm. when it was done, when you watched it on
0: the big screen, he's like, I don't think I can do better than this. Right. I take a master the term masterpiece to mean most movie. Like, like mm-hmm. maybe some people can argue that Scarface or or Body Double is the most is the quintessential De Palma cuz Carlito's Way is totally missing the luridness that kind of sleazy salacious part of uh, yeah. part of things even in a crime situation but is this a great way of De Palma to showcase like hey this is a this is the kind of thing that I can do for filmmaking and it's a, an amazingly solid effort that does some of his themes, but it also just works as a, a great conventional movie that you don't need to know anything about. De Palma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the best example on this, and this is a, if you're to take two sections of De Palma's filmography, that have a dichotomy. This is the sort of the flip side of what he does in uh, dress to kill dress to kills has that museum scene and it's great. It's wonderful. It's so dynamic. Yeah. And then it turns ugly. It's like, Venereal disease, ha ha. Yeah, you guys to get killed because you had sex once outside of your marriage, ha ha. But this one is, my God, the repudiation. That pool scene, the choreography of it is great. The way you're literally seeing a reflection, the, the, yeah. ball, the deals in reflections, but this is a reflection in a pool ball. <laughs> yeah, and you know where all the pieces no, are. No, I'm sorry, in the glasses, a reflection in someone's glasses. But what I think makes this an awesome scene Is that for however dynamic it is, for however uh, suspenseful it is, it's equally suspenseful when Carlito finds himself in the bathroom, but it's suspenseful in a static way. Mm. The camera doesn't move. It's Pacino, and he uses his braggadocio, but... You understand the reasons for it. It's so he can go and build himself up to be a threat so he can get out of a situation alive. It's giving a whole subtext to his braggart and his Mm larger-than-life persona in a way that never showed up in Scarface. And more importantly, at least as far as we're discussing the Palma, he honors the moment by making it static and saying this is a point where he has to get us from himself not something through any camera trickery on my part. Right, and he's able
2: to do that when you have an actor at Pacino's level working at his highest level.
0: Agreed, agreed. Mm -hmm. But the idea of being able to draw the suspense also from stillness, Mm -hmm. every bit as much of dynamism, that's a great sequence. And the ending sequence, which before it gets to the, the escalator scene, it has a great moment on the subway. Another so great this, subway yeah. chase. Right, so he's making an homage slash slash ripoff to himself from from which he does, yeah, from <laughs> *Dressed yeah. <laughs> <From laughs> to Kill*. So that was a that's a really great uh, uh, moment, and everything that um, was just done in terms of a sugar high in *Scarface* is now grounded in such a much much better way mm-hmm. from from like an older perspective, a more weathered, a more nuanced sense of like, of a guy just trying to build, a, trying to build a life together. Yeah. The, I think the fact that the the club he's doing has this nautical theme is really works well as a set design mm-hmm. way, because it's yeah. a, a sense of like being able to get away of a destination, which echoes the the paradise where he sees Penelope Ann Miller's silhouette dancing. And, it's, and by the way, which is also straight up a lovely, love, a lovely image from De Palma. That stuff works really nice. And uh, by the way, I'm also super partial for the, when he has side characters, those characters who were grotesques in Scarface, they deliver themselves as wonderful characters. You want to find out more about them. Sure. Manny Blanco from the Bronx is a great character.
1: I wouldn't mind a mini series remake of this.
0: Yeah. Like, to explore like, the world of these characters. There was some movie.
1: kind of sequel. Like, like, oh, there
2: was? Yeah. I'm not surprised. The,
0: like with Zamo, man. Just his, his sense of his up-and-comer and just yeah, the yeah. way he gets dressed down by Pacino. By the way, Pacino, a slight micro-spoiler, Pacino does a great dressing down in the in the uh, Scorsese film The Irishman. It's a wonderful scene. Oh, <laughs> but, God, in, yeah. but in Carlito's way, it's just great. Maybe I don't remember what I had to lunch either. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there is a, a, a former fellow prison inmate of his, and uh, Carlito has some suspicions about him. Is a great cameo turned by a young Viggo uh, yeah. Mortensen.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. And we can't ignore Sean Penn. Oh, who my, is, my gosh. It uh, disappears. In this uh, performance as the lawyer, he changes. Two of my he favorite Sean Penn easier.
1: performances are in De Palma
2: movies. I agree. Yeah. I agree. They w- they work great together, and the, the, the just the acting when Penn and and Pacino are on the screen together yes. is electric.
3: Agreed.
0: Yeah. Agreed. What a revelation is he in this one, Sean Penn, who's now known for playing these dour, mm-hmm. self hating photographer punching dudes, to have him be this super enthusiastic wannabe gangster who looks like (laughs) Larry fine from the three stooges was one is wonderful to behold. And it's super fun to watch them together. I agree with you completely, Brad, especially how Pacino has this weird level of not admiration, but like, okay, I get, the thrills of what this guy is going through he's just mm-hmm. going through this like 10 years later and he's really not equipped to be a gangster no kidding so, so it's this level of sort of revulsion sort of oh sort of oh geez yeah but but also a measure of I see where you're coming from which is why he doesn't abandon him until much later mm-hmm. yeah a great great supporting performance so I don't know if you know if he was nominated but he absolutely should have been for sure yeah. So yeah, Carlino's Way, I think, is my favorite uh, of all the Palmas. Cool, Just, all it, it, of them? Like, yes, because it takes the things that he's... Yeah, ver- I can see that. I, I can see why this is his favorite, too. Yeah, because it takes the all the things that he... To me, it takes all the things that he's he's good at, the, the way he's able to make the scenes imbue with, mm-hmm. with, so, with so much energy. And I guess I personally don't respond to the idea of exploring the, the more perverted parts of his personality so much, but I tremendously value how... It both makes this a great story that's super accessible. There's no case as in so many DePaul movies where you just go, huh? What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> which, I mean, again, that's a, that's its own charms. Sure. But I like that this works in a story. and it On a also, human level, yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. And it makes this kind of Scarface-type tale and imbues it with this real humanity to it. Yeah, yeah. And, right. so,
2: and, it's, and it's one of the movies that uh, is not from De Palma's kind of twisted brain. Right. It's, it's from a book. De Palma is limiting himself in working within the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting is until this completely fails, he actually ends up being a really good mainstream Hollywood director. And I think that is exemplified in uh, The Untouchables, which is probably the first quote-unquote normal movie uh, he made. That one's based on a David Mamet script, and uh, it's the movie that introduced uh, most audiences to Kevin Costner based on uh, the old TV series, based on the Al Capone years. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is just... Prime entertainment. I really in, enjoyed this a lot. It, it's nothing greatly original. It takes gangster and uh, Western formulas and, and applies them to uh, old time Chicago, but it does it with a hell of a
1: lot of style. It's, it's- fine. <laughs> <laughs> I- it's, it's funny because I remember when uh, we did our 1987 retrospective and I had that reaction, and Eric was like, What? It's fine? Like, yeah, I just never been crazy about it. I don't know why. I like I love Mammoth and I really like De Palma and I like this cast. Again, I like we kinda go back and forth between like this leading performance is great, this leading performance not so much. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. I just don't like Kevin Costner in this. Do you generally not like Kevin Costner? uh, Meh. Because this, I mean, this is just—I mean, this is—I like him in Field of Dreams. I yeah. like him in a few things here and there, but uh, this, like, th- there's even a moment where, like, he's—he's he's in that cabin after shooting the guy when they're waiting outside the bridge, and they, he has this l- delivery of this of the line. What do you think? This is a game. I just find that really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's moments where I'm like, yeah, that's—that's that's pretty weak. I guess in his terms of delivery on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think uh, did Sean Connery win best supporting actor and rightfully so it's so it's such a great performance and uh, Chicago way. Yeah. Yeah. So there are things I do like about this movie clearly, and there's great sequences and there's great suspense throughout it's, but it, uh, it's super, I've never been crazy about it.
0: I'm super weirded out by this. Is just a great cosmic connection of the of what we're talking about because I'm looking at this as an inversion of what Carlito's Way is doing. Mm. Carlito's Way has this, on top of everything else, it has this great luscious dark cinematography, and uh, Untouchables has this really luscious. Bright cinematography. So much of It's a of the little sepia. Is, it's
1: kind of sepia a little bit. Yeah, There's yeah. But, time but it is. You know. But it is.
0: It is stylish as all Get Out. Sure. Also notable is Carlito is about a gangster who's done horrible things, but he finds the way forward is to get straight. In other words, to be less brutal. And the story of the Untouchables is about a, a complete straight arrow who finds the way to succeed is to be l- more brutal. In, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. A scene which. Absolutely, Sean Connery owns talking about the Chicago way, and that's how you get Capone. And, and
2: Sean Connery is the acting force in the film; he's the the heart of the film. Yeah, but I do I do like what Costner's doing here as well, and it's something just very specific that Kevin Costner will be able to do, which sure. is to deliver this kind of. Innocent, tough guy thing that we often associate with Gary Cooper. And, again, this got old after a while. (laughs) Yeah. But maybe watching
1: it in retrospect like that. In the late
2: 80s, Kevin Costner had a number of really fine films in a row. I mean, you had This and uh, No Way Out and Bull Durham and Field of Dreams mm-hmm. and Dances with Wolves and JFK, all kind of within a short period. Oh, yeah, period. I like him in JFK. And yeah, he after that, he didn't have the staying power. But I really think uh, he brings an old-fashioned charisma to this one in particular.
0: It's an incredible statement on star presence. Mm-hmm. Just... Costner is not acting that well in The Untouchables, but he has this presence of like, okay, let's just see what he's going to do. It'll probably be something goody-two-shoes, but let's watch in a way that Jim Garrison, you needed somebody like that in that movie to go, let's see what he says next, no matter how unlikely the words coming in his mouth would be. (laughs) Sure, sure. Uh, sure. And here, yeah, is his sense of, uh, I'm just a by the book guy. Is like something which would actually cause um, uh, Jimmy Stewart to kind of be a little queasy. Well, that's why
2: <laughs> you need you need a, a Costner to sell that because not every actor can do that without giving a wink <laughs> a <laughs> wink to the audience. And yeah. Costner doesn't do it. It also marks a really cool contrast to De Niro's version of Al Capone, because he, he's like giddy in his lawlessness. He's I glad. would have liked to have seen
1: Bob Hoskins do this though. Oh, that would and, have been
2: fascinating.
1: Yeah, he was, well, he was originally supposed to be cast and I would have liked that. Oh more.
2: yeah, because he was the uh, one of the greatest gangster performances of all time in The Long Good Friday. Oh for my sure. God, so yeah. true,
0: so true. Yeah, I, I think De Niro's performance did give a very great aspect of it in its exuberance. He's a micro Scarface. Okay. He's a, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to grab everything. And in a moment that would have surely caused Crash from Bull Durham to seethe, <laughs> he even appropriates baseball <laughs> as a part of his evil ends, even in a metaphorical way. Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> Literally, the world is his. It's a whole, it's, it's all champagne for his. And meanwhile, like, this almost becomes a federal agent version of the Slobs versus Slobs comedy. One of my favorite points is how he assembles the team together. And it's such as this great disparate squad. It's almost the real Bravo of such things, right? Because you have an mm-hmm. older mentor guy with Connery. He's the heart of it, the soul of it, right? And you have the little skeezy, little uh, accountant, uh, spectacle accountant nerdy, yeah. who actually does do the thing that finally does get Capone, ironically, <laughs> not the not the brutality, although the brutality was the means to get to that point, right?
1: Director and, of Trick or Treat, by the way. Yeah? I had no idea until I watched really? that for nice. Halloween. Nice. Yeah, that, the little guy from this uh, is...
2: The, nice. He, well, he, and
1: he's also in Starman and a few other things. And, tra- he, and, and he
2: started out in, in the American graffiti oh right yeah yeah yeah.
0: and even the young gunslinger dude equivalent with uh, with andy garcia i really like team i really like the team they each have their own skills. So, ironically, that's more of a Hawksian tribute, maybe, than even the, the, Scarface, yeah, yeah. Than the Scarface remake. Yeah, because
2: it is kind of a Western, and the, the action sequences
0: work in the way the great Western action, action exactly. sequences do. And one of these things that I feel the movie has over Rio Bravo is it has two great villains, which is two more <laughs> villains than Rio Bravo has that you care about. <laughs> like, not only is De Niro great, it's literally living up to the name. No one can touch me. Yeah. But Nitty the guy playing Frank Nitti is such a great, hissable henchman. Yeah, he gets no, he's those, good, he's good. And I guess this is of the palmist skill that he's he's also manifests really well in a popular movie. He gets a great comeuppance that is absolutely well-earned. Oh, yeah. So, and this one, I think, yeah, he continues to use that trend from what we were talking about in Carlito's Way. He's making it more mainstream, and he's taking an accessible story building it up and then like using his dynamic camera moves and increased suspense to make it a a rousing success.
2: And the success of this movie led the way to a project that one would generally not associate with him, but turned out to be somewhat of a passion project for him. And one that I think, uh, pays off with casualties of war.
1: hundred percent agreed.
3: Uh Watch out now.
2: Casualties of War is very unique, I would say, in the De Palma canon. It is still a big movie, but it's not an excessive movie. And I think it's a movie that is very appropriate to the the serious message it's trying to convey about how war can not only damage people who are hurt, injured, and killed but can really cause people to, to lose their souls. And so we follow a troop into Vietnam headed by Sean Penn and with kind of a new recruit, Michael J. Fox being the, the audience surrogate. Penn, basically as they're about to head in into the jungle, kidnaps a young girl uh, from a Vietnamese village for the purpose of having her available to rape. And this is done as harrowing and as uh, hard to watch as all that implies. But the result, I I think, is a very meaningful, frightening in a different way and and sad film that uh, I really admire De Palma for being willing to go there.
0: I think it's really interesting that you note that it's sad, because that's not a tone that really uh, De Palma has shown himself interested in manifesting. But maybe I'm a little too um, flippant about that because you could argue the end of blowout is this, this feeling of regret of not being able to have some things come about. Yeah, that's definitely a sad moment. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so this is especially part of his flashback structure. It's also about that you couldn't have affected events. Yeah. There's obviously many films about the wartime experience and considering the Palma's like choice of interests in his movies, it's interesting that both that this is the subject of the Vietnam film that he's doing. And uh, also that this apparently is a film that De Palma really values and was and he was um, he's been trying to make it for a while. Right. And mm-hmm. and he was disappointed that it didn't get enough box office or critical recognition because he was clearly placing a lot of value upon ma- upon making this film.
1: I wonder if coming out after platoon maybe heard it.
0: Oh, it could have. Been. Yeah,
2: yeah, so it's a year later. It's this also the same year as Full Metal Jacket. So there may have been some Vietnam fatigue mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. But also the subject matter is just so dark even compared to other Vietnam films because the enemy
1: is ourselves
0: yeah. in, in yeah. this
1: film. Yeah. And so, one you know, part of Platoon I don't like is that Charlie Sheen literally says that at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. is just, we mm-hmm. weren't fighting Vietnam, we were fighting ourselves. Right. But, but like, oh, here it's, you. It's you. almost
0: like one of my father figures is an angelic figure, and another <laughs> is the devil right. who's tempting mm-hmm. me. Yeah.
2: But, but, but here, instead better. of being kind of ham-fistedly inserted, it's really the, the heart of the film because yeah. Yeah. what was interesting to me is not just the idea that war is such a corrupting factor and, and brings out the worst in people, but the idea of how amenable people are to leadership – and how people will follow somebody if they take the lead and the responsibility mm-hmm. into the most awful places. and uh, Sean Penn, to no surprise, as he almost always does, gives a brilliant performance. He has a absolute intensity and and a sense of being. In control and out of control at mm, the same time. Very intimidating. It's Nicely quite a man. it's quite a balancing act. Yeah. And, but but just the idea that he has the charisma to lead these men, inspire loyalty in these men, and then have them willing to even in in John Liguizamo's case, who's a character who sees how wrong it is, this kind of uh, peer pressure on uh, steroid thing to, to where they feel like they can get away with it because somebody else is telling them it's okay to do.
1: Yeah, in this case of this film, it's like war almost creates toxic masculinity to such a poisoning degree where it's just like we have to go in there and we have to be men and we have to do these mm-hmm. things. You can argue that literally at one point where Sean Penn is like my dick is a weapon, okay? Then you can say that that's pretty unsubtle <laughs> to do, but mm-hmm. there's truth to it. Yeah. You can um, you know a character like that, you who would do what he does and it's really upsetting. I think seeing this at a young age too kind of hit me, Al and I were talking off Mike a little bit about Michael J. Fox and just kind of growing up with him as family ties and as Marty McFly and watching him in this situation, I think added a lot of emotional weight to this character who just wants to get out of this situation, but can't. And there's one point in this film where he hits a character, he hits one of his teammates with a shovel in the face. Michael J. Fox was able to get to that point of anger Because Sean Penn was taunting him Mm -hmm. to such an insane degree that he exploded. And because even Sean Penn was like, I can't see Michael J. Fox getting angry. I just, I can't see that happening. To him as an actor, so I am going to make sure he gets to that point. I
0: share that sentiment about like I didn't uh, didn't see it in him, and, so and I buy and I did, it a hundred percent. I think and he's great in this movie. I saw. Remember when I saw that sequence, and it was so counter to to Michael J. Fox's usual way of delivering, which is to bitch in an annoyingly whiny voice about things like "Why are we in the war, Mallory? Come on, Doc." But there's gotta be a a medic in this platoon I think he's subtle in
1: some points like you know when he says this ain't the army Sarge and I I was
0: but I was convinced in that scene where he he, uh, uh, took the shovel to work and so it's kind of cute that you said it's kind of that you mentioned oh well with Sean Penn's, like if you got Sean Penn go to you I still suspect Sean Penn has the ability to irritate people (laughs) clearly they're really uncomfortable about but also ties into what you're saying about how so many of Michael J. Fox's other roles are about people trapped He's yeah. he's trapped by drugs in, uh, in in that Bright Lights big city. He's trapped by not having his ID in Doc Hollywood. He's tra- he's, he's all- trapped by James Woods in he's, The Hard Way. <laughs> exactly. He's trapped by the space-time continuum and yeah. by Doc in um, Back to the Future. So I guess that's his niche. My, sure. His niche is, how does he
2: get out of here? <laughs> he has another niche, too. Michael J. Fox, I think, is, is one of the best light comic actors of the period and has this ability more than, almost, than a lot of actors to kind of take that role of audience surrogate. I think that's why the Back to the Future movies are as effective as they are, is because they're providing these unbelievable situations. Yeah. But because Michael J. Fox believes them, we can believe them. Because we can see things through his eyes. Now, that's his niche. He generally hasn't been great, I think, in other dramas, just because that's not the kind of actor he is. But this movie is the exception. I think this is by far his best dramatic performance. I agree. But he utilizes this audience surrogate thing to make that happen, because – Somebody's got to see how wrong this is, and we as an audience are seeing that. Yeah, we know it. <laughs> and and through Michael J. J. Fox's eyes, this becomes even more vivid. Also, it's it's based on a true story, so he's recreating the situation that an actual soldier found himself in. But I mean, what we are seeing is horrific. the The actress playing the uh, Vietnamese girl has to just deliver some horrific moments that break your heart and between her doing that and then michael j fox as our eyes watching that we're really elevated from what could have been preachy or what could have been standard war stuff
0: I think I agree with you that this is his best dramatic performance. I think considerably so, but a lot of the reason is not the first seven, ace, which I think a lot of other actors could be put in that position of being helpless.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But what he does at the end in the subway, when he chases down and gives the scarf back and that look of regret on his face. Yeah. That is like, whoa, I hadn't seen that come out of Michael J. Fox ever. Whoa. Haunted Michael J. Fox. That's pretty damn awesome. And and even I think, before
2: the Frighteners.
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. Good. Good one. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise I think this movie is kind of like if Brent Easton Ellis went to Vietnam. Because it doesn't really talk about Vietnam, except in the most like editorial cartoon level about American imperialism, like right down to the fact that it's Leguizamo as a minority that just gets turned. To like, oh, you have to go and obey what the what the captain tells you. Right. yeah But again, that's total editorial cartoon level, simplistic, as is all the other people who are to me, including Sean Penn. I like that angle that he's both in control and out of control. He gets that. Too, but what he doesn't have is any sense of nuance upon or reflection about his character. Nor does any other members who are not John Leguizamo. Who are that's what Ward
1: does to him, you know.
0: Well, sure, but there's no sense of like where in other Sean Penn war movies there's a haunted quality he can deliver wonderfully Mm -hmm. to say here's what broke me. Here's why I'm ai messed up the way I am today. Like, like in like. Sometimes
1: the f- boogeyman's just a boogeyman. Right,
0: well, well, well <laughs> yeah, and exactly, and that's what I feel is unfortunate about Casualty of War* well, is that be- there's four boogeymen,
2: really. Yeah, but his best friend dying in his arms does yeah. provide some clue as to what broke him. That's true. And the idea that he's been in combat longer than than the other characters. Uh, uh,
0: agreed. Agreed. Unfortunately, I was I was hoping for more of a sense of dynamics, which which is definitely could be possible in other war movies. But here I found that it was five horrible reprobates and Michael J. Fox gets to witness it.
2: Well, I think that the, just them being reprobates is oversimplifying. Okay. I I think we're asked to look at the ugly side of humanity and how war can bring that out. And I think the film is very effective at
0: that. Yeah. Mm, But I think it has less to do with war. For one thing, like masculinity cannot get more toxic. Humanity can't get more toxic when you're put in a situation where you have to put a bullet in another person and kill Absolutely, them. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's kind of a self-evident environment, right? Yeah. But, but also it's more an exploration of group dynamics. Mentality, yeah. Yeah. Following somebody who's calling themselves the leader, the king of the world, and, and how that can lead you to evil ends. The idea of like that, especially the 80s setting and the New York setting, fits pretty well in the the next movie we're talking about, the Palma's adaptation of Bonfire of the Vanities.
2: Because now we're going to look at somebody known as the master of the universe.
0: Exactly. In the the Uh, world of New York
2: high finance, the uh, ultimate yuppie scum. uh, Played by the money pits.
0: Somehow.
1: (laughs)
2: They decided to cast as Tom Hanks.
0: So the 2008 uh, housing scandal could also be called the money pit. Very good. So
2: (laughs) bonfire of the vanities. I think you could uh, dislike the movie just by watching it, but to really (laughs) hate the movie it helps to have read
1: the book. Which I haven't, and it is I a, don't like this movie. No, no, no,
2: there's nothing like But But the book is excellent, and that's kind of the saddest thing <laughs> yeah. about this for me, is that people dismiss it because of the movie, and they don't realize there's this amazing book they could go through to get these themes told uh, correctly. This, yes.
1: is a, this has a great opening shot, I'll give it that, with uh, Bruce Willis eating a... A big hunk of salmon on an elevator. I like
2: that. Yeah, it's one. Of <laughs> I like the long, opening. <laughs> it's one of those long, unbroken uh, tracking shots yeah. that mm-hmm. uh, are almost always a sign that we're about to see
1: something special. Not here. Right. Same with snake eyes, <laughs> yeah. which we'll get to.
0: <laughs> this was a film whose at least source material goes almost against every kind of sensibility that De Palma was uh, going against. Like for one thing, what you can tell even from watching the movie is that, like, my complaint on casualties of war is that a lot of these people were one note to make a point. And very little of the characters I feel in Bonfire of Ages are meant to be one note. They're meant to have complex things, and like you have not exactly all good guys or all bad guys, but different levels of cynicism, different levels of a satirical point of view. And that's something that. De Palma's level of satire is the extent of parroting the the psychologist scene from Psycho in in Dress for Kill. That's the level of satirical level that he's interested in and is not the level in Bonford of Vanities at all. And and just the
2: idea of how far he goes with the alleged comedy of the piece is really (laughs) strange for me because I, I think we've talked admiringly about the extremes that De Palma can go to. But the thing is that it's one thing to be ridiculous when you're trying to make a thriller with scares that you're eating your popcorn to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This movie is about serious stuff. Racism, the role of class in society, corruption in the legal system. It deals with a lot that's tragic about America on the societal level. And its tone is to treat it a, as a comedy. Yeah. Now this can work. You can have your Doctor it Strange. Can be, lungs, yeah, like a satire. But the movie just can't support these themes. The theme of the story really is how the the main character considers himself above all the rest and above the law, and because of his place in society, he should be able to get away with. Uh, Mm-hmm. With anything, and there's there's a fall from uh grace and themes of hubris involved, and it really is undercut by casting Tom Hanks because <laughs> the whole cast is We bad. like yeah. Tom Hanks, and you're not really supposed to like Sherman McCoy. No, you're you're eventually supposed to kind of see that he's that an injustice is being done, that he he does not deserve to go to jail for a crime he didn't commit but you're not supposed to like him and so that's problematic more problematic is melanie griffith who (laughs) is got the worst southern accent i have ever heard Mm -hmm. is playing her role utterly cartoonishly
1: same and, with uh, Kim Cattrall.
2: Exactly. Ooh. Yeah, she's just the snooty upper class. Yeah. And yeah. Mellie Griffith is the uh, southern seductress, and everyone is is one no Even even Morgan Freeman, who is oh boy, always great, isn't used correctly here.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's have <laughs> let them give a speech for fifteen minutes yeah, to a courtroom that's about what judges, That's what judges do. Exactly. After they've
2: rendered their verdict, they give long speeches about. The the intro about the morality of the law and, mm-hmm. and 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 the lessons of the film just summed up in the trite little speech.
0: And then you have the Bob Hope type bumbling by uh, Bruce Willis as the as the uh, intrepid reporter who just keeps getting himself into more and more trouble. Oh my god, his so drunk miscast. bit, his drunk bit gets so
2: old. Yeah, no, that's yeah. just that's totally He's just lushing around the entire time like
0: Dean Martin. By the way, to get to the book talking about this, the, the disasters on set there's one particular detail that just made my eyes open. And it is one of many in the movie, but the one that gets me is they had a trouble production. And part of the production was that they had a delay of filming of like several months. And when the filming resumed, De Palma and the crew realized that their horror you know, uh, which is kind of in a weird comeuppance Melanie way. Griffith Melanie Griffith had bigger Griffith, breasts. Melanie Griffith had significant <laughs> had <laughs> breast enlargement surgery in the middle of production of the movie. Which I'm sorry, that is the single most—I don't care how good she is in Working Girl—that is the <laughs> single most bimbo thing a bimbo in Hollywood has ever done. Like, no. literally, you can make blonde jokes till the end of time, and you can't get as dumb as like. Who thinks to get breast enlargement in the middle of a movie shoot? Don't you get that these images are going to come later? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my God. Singular most stupid thing I've ever heard about Hollywood since the joke about the blonde who was so dumb that she slept with the screenwriter.
1: Very good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I wonder what you guys think he was, if he was more successful on the next mainstream film he was doing, Mission Impossible.
2: Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mission impossible is a fun action thriller. That's very distinctly in the mainstream. You could probably find some visual De Palma touches in it. And just in the sense that action movies are supposed to have suspense, this movie delivers. It's not one of my favorite films. No, Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a film I go back to again and again, but it does the job.
0: Yeah, I'm very surprised at this film because I I've become a fan of the Mission Impossible series as a lot
1: of people have. And and, I am in total agreement. It gets better and better.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I really that I particularly really like about it is to the extent that the films are like showcases for what the directors can do. Directors like Sam Mendes have been successful in the James Bond series, but it seems that like Bond and and especially Marvel, they put people can put people in a creative straitjacket and like you can only go so far. But Mission Impossible, by contrast, seems to give I mean, you can't have Tom Cruise look bad. (laughs) True. There's that (laughs) ironclad rule. But within that structure, it's interesting to me how. So often it reflects the sensibilities of the director. Like Brad Bird directed Mission Impossible Four, and it's very used a well. lot of it uses a lot of kinetic movement that m- harkens back to like monsters, uh, monsters Inc.
2: And John
1: Woo's version has flying doves.
2: Ex- so of course, um, oh, well, well, it
0: should. It also has two motorcycles sliding sideways yeah. with people firing. <laughs> yeah, it I'm is kind very of, I'm kind much
1: of disappointed that they're now just sticking to Macquarie. Yeah, that's, I mean, I like. I like his movies. I think they're doing, I think he's made some great Mission Impossible movies, but I would like to see a different director. Take yeah,
0: me, me too. Because I, I really like McQuarrie and all in his, in all of his other films in, including Usual Suspects, which he wrote. Yeah, that's right. Well, Brian Singer directed <laughs> it. Right. But yeah, I would like other directors. And what's weird to me is that with the exception of the suspense, there's very little of De Palma in this film, which is weird because part of the plot involves surveillance. I know, What's right? Mr. Yeah. Voyeur, you're running well, into the, a gold mine here. The, uh, I think the he was probably
1: of CIA, the infiltration of the CIA's. Oh yeah. That where he has to float on, yeah. the,
2: on the wires. That's, Amazing. That and the 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 train uh, on top of the train yeah. sequence, those those are killer action scenes. I think De Palma's really limited from being De Palma here, probably because of the producers and Tom Cruise really having control of the situation. It's kind of mm-hmm. like when Stanley Kubrick did uh, Spartacus. You know, he he did make a great yeah. movie, but yeah. it wasn't a Stanley Kubrick movie, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and this is the case where this this is. Not really that Brian De Palma-ish.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It's an interesting question as to whether it was Tom Cruise or the studios in general that would hinder some of uh, De Palma's more lurid uh, elements from being in Mission Impossible. But I would have thought he would have been able to at least explore the the idea of people being observed doing things that are doing things that are not right. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that Mission Impossible, the series, has gotten a little better at is just putting in this notion of a team together. I think they have a really nice squad of, squad of people. of here you
1: subvert the expectations by killing them off.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah and how. Poor which Emilio
1: is, Estevez, you don't expect him to get taken out, but...
0: Right, <laughs> and, and, and which is also counter... Not that, not that it particularly matters for TV to film adaptations, but like uh, that's also the key point of the show, was that, ironically the Hawksian thing about everyone mm. having a different set of skills and... tying it together so that the mission becomes a little less
2: impossible well
0: apparently they pissed off
2: a lot of fans of the show spoiler alert here in that they made the main character of the show the bad guy played by John Voight in the movie
0: right exactly which I've
2: I've never seen the series so I don't have investment there but I would imagine if I was a fan of that series that might not have played so yeah Mm -hmm. it's like
0: making a Charlie's Angels remake where it turns out Charlie actually uh, is co-owner of Screw Magazine like no no don't not that <laughs> anything but that <laughs> but it obviously uh made uh enough of an impression to make them now what's now going to be an effective franchise the palma i feel is uh, absolutely delivering the goods on the um suspense thing. but it's weird it's super weird how it got muted and his personality doesn't come through as much but they come through in a big way in when he made snake eyes especially in that opening sequence.
1: Yeah. Because that, that's a that great op- opening.
0: I'm trying to think about what makes that opening so great. And obviously the way it sketches, this whole area makes you completely aware of the geography, introduces all these characters in, in, the, in all the single the shot
1: pieces are there. And
0: exactly. You're Here's- wondering
1: how they come apart or come together. Exactly. Right.
2: Cause it would be very, it's very unusual to have a scene that great in a movie that is not great. Normally when you have something done with the skill and, and care of the, uh, murder, uh, in the boxing, uh, arena sequence, you're in the hands of somebody who is going to bring you all the way through the film. Mm-hmm. But in, instead what happens is the film kind of dies after it yeah. because, yeah. because, I mean, this 10 minutes is magnificent. The, the 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 way they don't break the shot, the way they find such creative ways of following the eye lines of all the characters as they're either watching the boxing match or trying to uh, prevent something from happening. And we don't know as an audience where the threat is coming from. The brilliant thing is that we don't see the boxers that we never look in the ring mm. but we're constantly getting we're getting to know this uh, stadium yeah. really well and everyone's just on their A game throughout and then the the shooting occurs and that sets off the movie and nothing else that happens in the movie can match can, that can yeah. Uh, yeah can can reach that level mm-hmm. agreed
0: seeing that movie increases my appreciation of Scarface on a significant amount for the simple reason that that Scarface does for three hours, what this movie can't do for 15 minutes, (laughs) (laughs) because for 14 minutes, it has all this energy and all this vibrancy. And then it's just done. It's
1: yeah. It just gets so heavy into the plot. And even Nicolas Cage's performance dies down a bit. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right. It's like, uh, I'm exhausted by all this already. And now I got to deal with all these characters. And even though they're they're not that really interesting. And I think the, upon a first viewing, I even know who was behind it all. But also, I think it was a budgetary issue with the ending because he wanted to have the spectacular hurricane sequence and make it more operatic and bombastic in a De Palma manner. But the reason why that ending just feels so dead and muted is because I think he gave up. I think he just said, we don't know how to end this movie the way I want to do it. So Mm -hmm. we're just going to do it this way. And that's that. And it's so disappointing when you end on, when you start on such a high note to watch it falter the way it does.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, I saw some raw footage of what he wanted for the original ending and I'm, I'm glad they have the ending of what's in the movie. Oh, Oh, really bad. Okay. It's, it's a huge, a huge wave is going off this like Navy pier, like, uh, yeah, uh, that's what he he wanted. Right. And, and, uh, for one thing, it's a do-a-mashina because Gary Sinise is threatening um, mm-hmm. uh, Nicholas Cage at that moment with a gun. What's going to stop him? If it's it was a wave. giant wave, it would be bad enough. No, the giant wave grabs this 40-foot-high brass ball that's the brother of the giant rolling boulder from raiders of the lost ark and (laughs) rolls it into this tunnel that fits the ball perfectly and it squishes um uh, gary sinise like a roach in a pinball machine it's a video game (laughs) yeah you get a video game that's not
2: better (laughs) no no
0: No, it's it's not not. better
1: (laughs) it just feels anticlimactic I could see him doing such a good heist movie or a good con man movie. It doesn't really happen and, here. And,
0: and the problem with it is that he, yeah, he blows his load, all of it in the beginning. Yeah. Like at least in even, in, even in other films, a lot of the other films we talked to have these dead moments. These, these moments are like, like the, the minutes of banter between, um, uh, between one of the characters and Charles Durning's character and sisters, for example, the, the the attempted comic banter, like that goes on way too long. But then you have a great suspenseful sequence after it, or mm-hmm. you have a dream sequence. It's parceled out here. There's nothing to parcel.
1: Yeah. You, you just can, get different Rashomon perspectives. Again. As, as
0: soon as right. the Mike Tyson timed boxing route is over for you, you may as well go. You pretty much got all you can out of it. And it's honestly, it's just a great object lesson for De Palma because you see the the parts where he does care, why it's great. The parts where he really, really doesn't care. And yeah. honestly, when you can get a, when you can get a nonplussed, disaffected performance from Nicolas Cage, a guy who gives us all in both Ghost Rider movies, <laughs> you <laughs> you know that there's a lot of energy is not being displayed on yeah. the set of making this film. So if, if Brian Thumbs De Palma
2: down. is not really doing well at uh, in a movie that's not his traditional style, as he gets into the later part of his career, he'll go back and try to recapture some of that old glory. Probably uh, the first post Hollywood example of this is Raising Cain. <laughs> Which uh, came out uh, not too long after uh, Bonfire and did not do well, uh, but is certainly interesting as a return to form to an earlier kind of style that I think reminds me a lot of uh,
1: Sisters. Mm. Mm. Yeah, okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I can see that it's funny that the audience I saw this movie with booed at the end. Uh, oh, wow. yeah, that's and unfair. The, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> they this and Mother. Actually, I remember well, audience, <laughs> audiences <laughs> booing at the end, just like pissed off. Um, yeah,
0: it's it's a, yeah, it's absolutely fair to boom Monster because it's it's hitting a lot of things that can anger people. Mm-hmm. And, and if you were and if you were looking at Raising Cain and if you were looking at Raising Cain expecting a kind of mystery that that would be resolved through a, any sense of a logical way. Yeah, you you're going to be angry. But if you are looking instead at the very beginning or anything that John Lithgow is doing (laughs) then you realize what you're John Lithgow show, right? What you're getting is a gigantic... Lark in luridness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something uh, and something ridiculously entertaining. Exactly. Something that takes that feeling that I described earlier of about the thing like the, you gotta be fucking kidding. This is, you gotta be fucking kidding. The Hitchcock movie, like, Mm -hmm. like frenzy with a much better lead performance. I think.
2: (laughs) Right. Cause even by body double standards, the plot doesn't work. I I don't think it's It's really a, Good movie per se, but it is an enjoyable one. Have you seen the recut version of it? Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah, it's but, supposed to
1: be. I think what, what happened was the Lolita Davidovich affair was supposed to be the first act of the movie, and then the John Lithgow stuff was supposed to be the second act of the movie. But I believe the studio asked them be, to switch them around because the Lithgow stuff was so much stronger. Mm hmm. That's certainly true. That would
2: be a, yeah. If that's a studio note, that's a problem because yeah. as we you know discussed in Carry, great thrillers built, and that also might explain why the plot really makes no sense. Exactly. I mean, it's doing the multiple personality thing, which in and of itself is kind of an invitation for excess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the, Al, the, po- the point you made about Lithgow really is the, the main story here. Yeah. Because whatever else is not working, Lithgow is making this a blast to watch. Yeah. Just because <laughs> he, he is just taking it to 11.
0: It, it, yeah. All three of his roles are All great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was like hickory dickory dock at one point. Like, just ridiculous stuff.
0: (laughs) Yes. This is his evil John Lithgow, or, well, it's an open question who's more evil, right? But the more maniacal John Lithgow Mm. is right up there with Dr. Emilio Lizardo from Buckaroo Banzai in terms of all out, like, absolutely delivering the crazy. And then relative, innocent, naive Lithgow is just, he's like, to me, a supercharged for example, of Norman Bates from from Psycho, because because he's just as twitchy, but I feel he even more he imbues actual trauma that's happened in his life. Yeah, and so with a great uh, callback to the Powell film Peeping Tom, as he was tortured by his father. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. So and and his father with. The third another prong of the, of, the, of, the, of the John <laughs> of the John Lithgow show. He's so great as a malevolent doctor who you feel has reserves of this pure evil to him, yeah. like, but hidden under this official prick exterior. Could you imagine what Lithgow could have done as the Finley role in uh Sisters that die sure, to make sure. another connection? Mm-hmm. Like he's sort of kind of a version of that character, but way, way delivered more convincingly. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he's so convincing in all these roles that I don't even know why the the affair plot was there. If it was simply a look at like Lithgow get feeling some pressure, and then you don't realize what's wrong with him, and building on that, that would have been a little that would have been a little better. Yeah. As such, the Davidovich ones come across to me as more like a respite. Maybe Lithgow could have worn out some of his three welcomes in uh in this if it was all. <laughs> I think him. it has for some people. If if, if if for if it was all him, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's broken up by this affair thing then you're like, you're waiting waiting for him. And if that (laughs)
2: was more interesting, then we would have had a more balanced movie altogether. But whenever we were not following Lithgow and his uh, manic performances, we're kind of just waiting for him to come back.
0: Pretty much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in fact, his sense of personality to these performances, in a way, enhanced a lot of points of the plot, where if you really care, like you said, Brad, if if you're carrying on a plot, there's a lot of things that are so stupid But when you Lithgow, to me, comes across like, I'm so huge, I don't have to pay attention to what the story is. (laughs) I'm going to do Lithgow is going to Lithgow. Let's put it that way. Let's put it that way. by me. And yes, exactly. Um, This is a case where his performances and De Palma's depiction on the performances, which include, by the way, an amazing tracking shot across multiple floors across the motel. Yes. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That That, that, was good. That uh, where different, you know, different people have to be in different rooms, and you're different levels of menace and all that. More
1: elevator stuff at one
0: point later in the film. Exactly. Exactly. If you can get on Lithgow's wavelength once you realize how messed up he is, then you it's it becomes an enjoyable ride that does paper over a lot of the things that you that people could find. uh, yeah. At issue. And by and the way, that, that final
2: shot that your audience booed at, I thought was great. I, I thought it was I did just too. a great reveal. It's like De
1: Palma's greatest completely, hits. Kind of completely
2: movie. silly, <laughs> yeah. but, but
0: works on a, on a visual popcorn level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. It's actually an homage layer of cake, right? Because in the span of that one second, he's quoting three of his other movies all at once. <laughs> right, <laughs> sure. <right>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Nothing
0: wrong with that. Yeah, and so. The Palmas goes into a maybe a different kind of indulgence and a different sense on performance in the next one we're going to talk about Femme Fatale.
3: Cause everybody knows the, the thing she does to please she does She's just a little tease the See the way she walks Hear the way she does
2: See, this is where you should compare <laughs> this uh, podcast to the first De Palma <laughs> podcast when the pro-De Palma guy was really, really high on this movie. I, I would, am not so high I would on this never,
1: movie. <laughs> ever call this the best of the decade. That is... Uh, uh, I'll have to quote the episode. That's ludicrous. It is ludicrous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, unless,
0: unless, unless unless decade is German for some kind of lavatory. No, that's not, this is not the best of any decade.
2: Um, (laughs) I mean, it's also not the worst. I mean, I think we've talked about worse movies than this, but, uh, and we have already.
1: (laughs) I've mentioned I like De Palma at his most batshit kind of ridiculous. And to me, this movie is kind of ridiculous and I love it. And it's one of those where I'm watching it. I'm like, that's kind of bad. Rebecca Marine Stamos is pretty bad in this movie. She's
2: the the Craig Wasson of the movie.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's, 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 that's that's not fair because the thing is that Craig Wasson is a, is a, is a gigantic black hole of personality. She is features too many personalities.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> different, she's like kind of reserved throughout the most of this movie and just not really reacting to a lot of
0: things. Right. Unless but she's I mean required to react as a, as an ingenue, unless Yeah, she's required to act as a mat- criminal mastermind and then switch. But I think just to like open
1: this movie with her watching double indemnity, I just, and then that, I love the diamond high sequence. Uh, but for me, I'm like laughing through a lot of this movie, like even just spoiler alert, the revelation that this was all essentially a dream. It makes me laugh. And I remember oddly enough, watching this with my mom in the theater. Cause she loves Antonio Banderas so much. Yeah. Um, yeah but that <laughs> opening scene must've been awkward. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There's some awkwardness, but at the same time, I'm like, this is kind of enjoyable for me. It's like De Palma high on his own supply kind of experience. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a self parody, but I think when Ebert said it, like this is kind of his Mulholland drive. I kind of buy that a little bit. Uh, It's just like, I'm going to go crazy with my style and I don't care if people don't like it. And it's funny to watch how things play out after she gets out of the tub because everything before that, you see all the characters that are going to be in her dream throughout the film. Like you see Greg Henry walking around the hotel at one point, you see Peter Coyote walking around the hotel at one point and Watching that play out, and certainly the sequences, um, particularly li- after the it's a reveal that it's a dream and how the two bad guys get killed, I think all that is beautifully set up and staged and choreographed. I just, and I like the whole idea of uh, Antonio Banderas as this photographer piecing all these things together in a collage against his on his wall. I think it's a Beautiful visual representation of kind of how he's approaching this film. Yeah, Antonio Banderas, I think, is kind of the movie's saving grace. He's he's good.
2: He's really watchable. And I I I think this movie would have been better if it was more from his point of view. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of
0: a trick of the movie, right? Because the movie starts, then you think it's Rebecca Romain Stamus' point of view. But if you really think about the arc, and especially who has a dramatic arc and is continuous, his attitude changes. Mm That's Banderas. Right. Banderas but we, has an arm. Yeah. But we
2: don't like get Banderas until about halfway. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> so that's halfway through the movie. But but he's good. There's a few things I like. I like when they enter the dream sequence. How basically she's taking a bath and the water is overflowing from the bathtub, and we uh, cut to the living room where there's a fish tank, and the water's overflowing from the fish tank. Good catch. Which makes no
1: sense. Yeah. In any context right.
2: other than it's a dream. Well, and the and-
1: same with the bad guy. 7 years later coming back and wearing the same exact clothes that he was wearing 7
2: right,
0: years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. Like so, that
1: that to me I laugh. So I that, laugh at these things.
0: Yeah, so that's
2: clever. I kind of the, the opening felt like the, the biggest connection Mission Impossible has to any other De Palma is kind of how the opening high uh, sequence here looked a little like the Mission Impossible. Well, height. it's yeah.
0: it's kind of in context to what we I found out well about the end of Snake Eyes with the giant with a guy getting run over by a giant pinball during a wave <laughs> like <laughs> like I now look at the the heist even more charmingly but I I like the I like the heist too because I I felt that it was I felt that at that point the movie was framing itself as like uh, that oh we're doing a heist thing but except we're gonna have "Quote unquote fun with it. We're gonna, yeah, it's We're gonna, we're gonna ha- put in some silly elements. Maybe De Palma will go. This is what I would have wanted in Mission Impossible. Let's have a cat enter the movie for no there you reason. Go. That's all you and, need for me. Interfere with this fourteen foot long proboscis, which somehow <laughs> eludes the uh, view of the security guard in played a particular- by Brian De
1: Palma's brother.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, Matt. Uh, I have to give a shout out once again to Matt Gamble for his, uh, for his uh, in the mid rant. He goes, see, even his brother doesn't know how to do his job. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great, great line, Matt. But also, I'm really charmed by the fact that when all the lights go dark, everyone in the theater's like, oh, oh, "What do we do? Darkness!" I've not experienced this since twelve hours ago. Yeah, <laughs> like at the Cannes Film Festival, of course. right? I feel that like this is kind of the thing that if De Palma had free reigns and didn't have Tom Cruise with a gun pointed at his head, he would in Mission Impossible, like, oh, "I'll throw in some, I'll throw in some yeah. of these things," and make the sense of being a being whims- a whimsical caper. That's it is a whimsical of, caper to yeah, me. And, that, yeah. and, and with her that, at
3: the
1: end just saying, only in my dreams. It's <laughs> like, yes. It's so silly. I love it. But as
2: much as I I liked kind of the technical way he came in and out of the dream sequence, I have the same problem with a lot of dream sequences. It really renders entire parts of the movie moot Mm -hmm. because it didn't really happen. I'm like, okay, so I'm invested in this. Why? Yes, I can
0: understand if you were got really invested in the um, police sergeant who interrogates uh, Banderas for 10 minutes and then has an angry scene with Peter Coyote only to find out that... Why would she be dreaming that, exactly? Yeah, exactly, and then, yeah, it didn't really... And, And, in fact, it literally ends with him telling Banderas... All right, I got my eye on you, and neither him <laughs> nor <he> his <laughs> eye is ever seen again. <laughs> yeah. um, one of you guys made a comparison to Mulholland Drive, and it's like, this, to me, is exactly the same thing that made The Fury. The Fury is like David Cronenberg, if David Cronenberg didn't have a thought in his head. This is Mulholland Drive, if, if David Lynch had no thoughts at all about Hollywood, or or how, how, it, how it wrecks people, or the perils of stardom, or anything like that, he's just like... I wanted to go mind fuck a dream. They, all these references of dreams happened earlier. Yeah. And then just does not in this way that like, <laughs> like is actually perversely audacious and how it doesn't even try to make sense. Sure. It, it actually reminds me of this. What I like about it. That doesn't make it's, sense. it's well, yeah. And I'll, and I'll be, and I'll be honest with you, Jim, I kind of had a, a feeling of enjoyment too, in a way similar to this one particular, um, I'm, I'm a fan of the, some of the cheese and Godzilla movies, and there's one particular Godzilla movie where the scientists, dis- an attempt to get rid of Godzilla, they invent time travel and mm-hmm. they go back in time to prevent Godzilla from being created. Yeah. Now they actually are successful, but then they find out when they go back to the present day, not only is there another monster wrecking the city, but everyone in town is saying, "Hey, where's Godzilla?" <laughs> <laughs> like, like, no, you have, guys have no idea how this works, do you? Yeah. That's, how I, that's how I look at it at the very end I'm like, the very ending of this movie Where it almost looks like it gets spiritual Where the light that's going at a, yeah. a, a prominently displayed church Causes a certain reflection That would have only caused a reflection If somebody did a nice gesture because that whole idea that like things turn out better because it's an act of mercy when she gets out of the tub. Yeah. And she, and, and believe it or not, I actually have a justification for the striptease sequence, that big dilemma thing that uh, people oh want, like God. in the other podcast. Why would she do a striptease to this guy? If she wanted to have sex with him, just have sex with him, right? When she's doing the strip tease and after this really nicely filmed fight where she's sitting on the pool table and you see the fight in shadow and silhouette behind him as a big grin comes across her face. Yeah. Really nicely done scene. But after that, it, like, Banders is like, what? what's the matter with you? Which is a very good question for her in many points of the movie. Her reply is, you have to realize we're in hell. So what she's doing in there is she's basically like, is she's basically like negating his sense of, because what is he, what is he trying to do? He's trying to save her. And mm-hmm. what she's trying to do is she's trying to tell him I'm not worth it. I'm a bad person. Right. Right. And so that's when you look at that in that context, and then she gets out of the tub, this is the first magnanimous things. Like I'm going to try to make a better life for myself by saving this person. Sure. And so that's what I'm saying. It's some sort of spiritual and moral component. So I'm like, huh? That's kind of a. Uh, I was very not expecting that to say. I wasn't that. either. I'm glad say, you got that out to, of it. to say to say the least. You won't get and, that out of out of uh, passion or domino. I know. <laughs> and by by the way, by the way, the other the other crazy thing with that in context, if you as you look like the potential things that that ending scene means. Obviously, it's horrifically, ridiculously implausible because there's people that she hasn't met and 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 she wouldn't know Antonio Banderas doing these things. Because she sees him for like a second in the actual time, main timeline, for example. But she did but, dream about him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She dreamed them him after seeing him for a second taking her picture, right. But it's actually way, way, way more plausible than what happens right after the heist. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I'm guilty of overthinking on, overthinking on movies, as you can obviously tell from what we <laughs> just said, but also about plot. So sometimes when people make a plot that's ridiculous, I just get really irritated at it. And which is obviously informs a lot of my opinion on De Palma, but Oh God, after the heist scene, I'm just going to say it right out. You're expected to believe she's trying to get away. And she goes in to the one church in Paris where people are having a funeral for the relatives of a girl who looks exactly like her and the parents decide to go stop the funeral and chase her. And they get to the very hotel where she's thrown off a a ledge False three stories. She survives and they decide to not take her to a hospital, but take her in her car and take her into her house. (laughs) All without, all without realizing she's wearing a wig (laughs) <laughs> like, like, Again, like oh, I, I felt like I was falling, like <laughs> like falling in like the vertigo dream sequence. I'm like, this is so wrong. You couldn't have someone point out like that none of this should have ever happened. Well, the the movie Forgo has logic already, in this case.
2: Yeah, it's it's already so off the rails. Yeah, I mean, really, it's about as nonsensical as raising Kane. <laughs> that's
0: right the, the thing is though is that the heights was not raising cane level it was just a mildly absurd take of mission impossible so I'm like mm-hmm. okay you under like it's not like she used her magical powers mm-hmm. to get out there like did she use their gadgets right that it was following those rules then when they, all this stuff happens there's no rules mm-hmm. <laughs> like like you don't even know who these people are then you realize that when you re, the thing is in a mystery you have a mystery who are these guys then you realize who they are it's like wait that actually makes less sense now that I know <laughs> you don't wow. want that in a mystery <laughs> and so so that part was like, oh. After that, I was just like, okay, we're just gonna ride out and just see what see what happens. And it's and it's hitting all these different things. And then I'll t- I'll be honest, that ending, just by virtue of what it's trying to say, and the fact that it is trying to say something, it's. It, I thought it was a little more than the lark that you were generally t- wow. taking it. So uh, let's I'm describe surprised the
2: ending because I don't think I uh, for me it just wasn't so profound. What what it was is that in this uh, timeline. After the dream, she gives, I think, a, a a piece of jewelry, an earring, something like that, to the driver as a as a goodwill thing. And then this is reflective. And when the truck passes, the reflection from the bauble causes the truck not to hit the good guys, right, but to hit uh, the bad guys. Right. Yeah. I guess I'm not seeing the divine intervention there. I'm seeing more a plot device.
0: Well, but the thing is, what does the device mean? The, because that would not be there if she didn't give him the bobble, which was a necklace from her recently departed child. That's what. Mm-hmm. That's what the mm-hmm. character gives. So it's the and and the Don't also to the, the truck, truck driver. The truck driver also, in a moment of charity, is talking about his own daughter. In other words, it's through a gesture of humanity that allows for a moment of. Happiness for the characters that wow. you we're not expecting to, to take place. So, yes, it is definitely a plot device. But what is the device operating on? What to what purpose? And like the idea of the passing something forward through charitable works like, huh? Wasn't expecting that device.
1: All right. Um, uh, yeah, I wasn't I, either. But I'm, I'm kind of now I like it more someone like Pauline Kael was kind of loving all of De Palma's movies throughout his career. And then Ebert went and gave this like four stars when it came out. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was like, you know what? I I think this is just dumb fun. And I, you know, I understand if people don't connect with it or think it's dumb, but I think it's fun. And that's kind of where he ended up at because
2: he eventually lost a lot of his ability to raise money and, and to fund his films. And so really the, the material that's post femme fatale tends to be overlooked. I haven't seen them all, but I haven't seen anything that's really extraordinary in the passion way. Passion is pretty his, weak. I mean, some people defend
1: it in mm-hmm. the same way I do with ben Fatale.
2: Yeah, that's a passion was is kind of like all about Eve with yeah. murder. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, and it, and it wasn't as. I mean, I did see *Domino*, his very last film, which is just atrocious. Atrocious than, in a
0: *Raising Kane* way, or no, atrocious? It's not a,
1: silly. It's just boring. Yeah,
0: That's what I heard. Yeah.
2: Oh. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's not. It's not even particularly De Palma. It's just. Generic boring thriller number thirty three.
0: Are there flashes of his technique or his interests that show up in the latest any movies? Any split screens? Any split diopters?
2: I don't think we saw any <laughs> any of that. Now, passion has its moments. Passion it has a couple of good sequences. Is watchable. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody just because there's so much great De Palma out there. Yeah, but it, I didn't think the cast was that I, I strong. I certainly hope that he does another one so that Domino is
1: not his last film. Mm-hmm. Well, I think his next movie is called Sweet Vengeance. Okay, so could you ne- never know right. with De Palma. I, get, uh, yeah, I, I want another great De Palma movie. What I want out of De Palma is a kick-ass thriller. I want
2: De Palma to do what De Palma does best and scare the hell out of me like he used to be able to do.
0: There's a lot of effort involved in, in, in oh, De Palma yeah. at his best for winning the induces suspense, whether it's through split screen or uncut shots. And so on, and so you need to have the energy level for it. I think if he if he is able to maintain that, and he can go and get some freedom to it. Personally, I would like to have that put onto a more conventional Carlitos Way story because I feel it could be a great enhancement on on something, or maybe even a return to Mission Impossible. To be quite to be quite honest, hmm. but yeah, as much as I may dislike some parts of him, uh, he's definitely a filmmaker who's done some of the most remarkable sequences, shots, and in of all things, hi mom, one of the greatest moments of all cinema. So that I treat that as a lesson that even the most disreputable material, you should be able to at least give it an examination and have the hope that the Palma has some more stuff to offer.
1: His high highs are really exceptional with, with Carrie and Blowout in particular, because they're movies I go back to and find interesting things in them. uh, The more I revisit them. And then even some of the more middle of the road stuff, sisters and body double, I think, I think they're elevated by his style and his technique and his energy and his willingness to go for broke and try things that most directors wouldn't, especially in terms of cinematography and just being really bold with his choices. And what most directors can't because he simply brings a hell of a lot more talent
2: to his best films than most directors would be able to just on a pure filmmaking level.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he may be the prodigal author, <laughs> either that or the uh, pornograph auteur <laughs> in terms of doing impulse. He does it maybe like very few people can. Thank you so much for having me back hey, on. I'm glad s- you
1: didn't yell as much or use as many ex- expletives, Al. And- you found that pretty? Yes. <laughs> it was an interesting twist. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> a, a little more comfortable for uh, experience for you. Yes. Huh? Yes. Right. Well, yeah. I, I didn't have
1: to reach for the Xanax this
3: time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no. We're very glad that you were able to come in and, and join on this it's, uh, perspective it's a pleasure. on De and yeah. I think we all had different, varied perspectives on a whole number of his films, and yeah. and for such a director, this is something helps gives us an increased perspective. It's for, for me
1: it makes sense to come on the show for the conversation and then come on back for blowout <laughs> 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 because they just happened to my obsessions ah god yep right. you well, bet thank you so much for joining us
0: yeah. thank you and thank you guys for listening in we hope you enjoyed our dive into the depths of De Palma. if you have Impressions of what is your favorite De Palma movies, what you like, what you hate about uh, De Palma, what you found wanting or non-wanting on our impressions on De Palma, you can feel free to give the Directors Club an email at podcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club Podcast is found in multiple places all across the internet. We are um, online at iTunes and Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, Twitter at DC podcast. We are posting in some Orson Welles and Ingmar Bergman works currently at our YouTube channel of Directors Club Podcast. And you can find all of our episodes archived, including the uh, original, more swear word filled and contentious discussion on De Palma at our site at Directors Podcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you on another episode of The Directors Club. I'm going to have a horrible connection. I'm going to deliver for you guys. Could you imagine JFK if Craig Wasson was? uh Oh, stop.
1: (laughs) Don't do that.
2: There is is
0: no correct answer for if
1: Craig
2: (laughs) Wasson. Fair fair,
0: fair enough. But but what if Craig
1: Wasson was in Breaking Bad? Right. it, It would have been broken.